not a good thing to play with, Kitty. It makes noise. Danielle, are you talking to the cat or me this whole night? Maybe the cat. <laughs> Boy, you're going to miss out on a whole heck of a lot of Hyperion. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. We definitely didn't want to make this eight parts, so this is oh, happening. That's true. It's not the, no, it's not for you. Don't play with that. I can't get rid of it. I'm sorry. It's on my chair. You can move a cat. They are not immobile. But she's so cute. <laughs> she wants to be a podcat. She wants Danielle, to help. I swear. If that cat makes us take four hours, I am going to freaking quit. Okay, if the cat keeps it up, I will obviously remove the cat. Don't worry. <laughs> All right, you ready for some silence? Yes, is the cat? Let's find out today. Danielle, on she Book better Retorts. be. All right, starting now. I'm sorry, she's not ready. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. And I don't recall anything we talked about last time we talked about Hyperion, because it's your week for Hyperion! Danielle, not only is it my week for Hyperion, it's the final week of Hyperion for this book! <laughs> Do you have a kazoo? Yeah, I got a kazoo. <laughs> we gotta celebrate, Danielle, this thing is finally Yay! coming to an end. I do believe book two deserves a kazoo. I mean, we're going to take a pretty good break after book two because book <laughs> three and four are like sort of a sort of separate self-contained arc. So we're basically finishing the first arc of Hyperion, which I think we need a break for. That's very exciting. And there's just so many things to wrap up that I don't believe will be wrapped up. So this will be fun. You will be surprised at how many things it wraps up and then how many things it sets up for next time. <laughs> oh, no. But I actually have a little funny story to tell you, Danielle, before we get started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What should I happen to find when I get home but a little package from you? Already? Yeah. That was really fast. They said Wednesday. It is not Wednesday. <laughs> it is certainly not Wednesday. But let me just tell everyone here what I found inside that package. <laughs> it's so good, Sam. It's so good. <laughs> It was a little thumb drive with a DJ Shrike playlist. Yeah, but you have to tell them that it looks like a cassette. You put a cassette sticker on a box, you put the you put the flash drive in. Yes, that's correct. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I think we should share with our listeners the set list you gave DJ Shrike. <laughs> you asked me to come up with a set list I for did. DJ Shrike's I time did. extravaganza. <laughs> you did, and that's guess what? Then we're gonna share with our lovely listeners now that you that you did that. <laughs> Go for it. All right. Well, on side A, the party mix, we start with <laughs> Shares Believe, because obviously. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Billie Eilish is bad guy. Well, he is. Maybe. Sort of. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's of note. Uh, have you listened to any of these yet? Oh, all of it. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Well, then I think it's of note that these are all remixes of Most like, of them EDM are remixes, classics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was surprised when I heard everybody wants to rule the world and did not hear the familiar Tears for Fears version and, in fact, heard the remix, which was also fun. Yeah, yeah I thought so. I, I spent a lot of YouTube hours on Yeah, that. I know she grabbed these all from YouTube. <laughs> Shh. It's a secret. Don't tell Google. <laughs> then we got Time After Time and then Only Time, which, I don't know, that didn't seem redundant. <laughs> running low on time songs, Sam. There's well, only so many time songs. Well, then you got If I Could Turn Back Time, so, you know, going strong. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many lists I looked through and YouTube videos I watched. 
Then we have a callback to Highlander with Who Wants to Live Forever, which, great choice. <laughs> Thank you. Then Every Breath You Take, because I guess the strike is creepy. He is. He's a stalker. Okay. And then Or Fortuna, a remix. Well, we did decide it was like the song. Yeah. Oh, no, I love Or Fortuna. Coming up to side B, our slow jam. So grab your partner in, bring him in close for a little slow dance. Sunday slow jams. It's the end of the world as we know it. Great slow jam. <laughs> <laughs> We're just songs that weren't EDM mixes, Sam. <laughs> I really want to hear people like slow dance to, you know, to, to R.E.M. <laughs> and we have How Villains Are Made, which I guess is all about the Shrike. Again, very good. It was a pretty good song. Yeah, I discovered that specifically for this uh, mixtape. Yeah, yeah it's very nice. And then we bring it back around to Time Waits for No One. <laughs> and then Que Sera, Sera very fatalistic, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then we have one simply titled... Time song. That's <laughs> <laughs> what it was called. Who was the artist of Time Song, Danielle? Wouldn't you like to know? That's why I asked. <laughs> it should be on there. Is it it's not? It's not. <laughs> you wrote I can't exactly tell you. three. You wrote exactly two artists on this thing: Cher and Billie Eilish slash Justin Bieber. Then gave <laughs> That's up because I ran out of space. Did you see how small that was? Yeah, you and I know. didn't have a backup. That was the only one I had. Let me see if I can find out for you what time song is. I can't remember. That was another one I discovered specifically for. It's the Kinks. The Kinks. Yes, it's the, the kinks. kinks. Yeah. Good job, Detective Danielle. <laughs> Okay, and then we have rule the world, but not everybody wants to rule the world. So, you know, we're we're just being a little confusing there. <laughs> I can't help it if people name their songs similar things. And I think you want to bring in some empathy for DJ Shrike, which is why you brought in Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood by the Animals. Exactly. I feel it, Danielle. I feel it this playlist. This is great. <laughs> there was an arc. Yeah, there was an arc to it. And is the last line, is, this isn't a song, you just wrote inspired by John Keats. Nope, that's a song. It's a song inspired by John Keats? That it's was a, a song. song. Yeah, right. I, it was the very last song on that, that space. I, I you listened honestly, to all of them, Sam. <laughs> it was very weird. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> it's a song called Inspired by John Keats. I looked up John Keats music, and to my surprise, and it is a really weird music video. I highly recommend watching the YouTube I, I recommend video. you please share that to Twitter when this comes out so everyone can enjoy the Inspired by John Keats music video. Oh, it is a wild ride, man. I watched it several times because I was like, what is going on? <laughs> uh, I'm going to watch it as soon as we're done here, probably. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you, Danielle. DJ Shrike's set list is finally, finally set just in time for his grand finale appearance. I'm glad. I'm glad that made it to you in time for our recording, Sam. I know. It was very serendipitous. <sighs> we're doing all the party stops. You know, we're pulling out the kazoos. We're getting the set list together. This is like the most effort we ever put into a podcast. I should have put something with kittens on there. <laughs> oh, too late. Round Maybe two. for DJ Shrike mixtape number two. Yep. Remix. <laughs> remix. DJ Shrike mixtape remix. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of mix. <laughs> I was very proud of myself. Do you remember like hmm, months ago? I'm talking like September or something where I said, oh my God, I have an idea. Yeah, this and is then it. <laughs> I wrote it down in my, in my notebook of my languages that I'm learning. And I came across it later. was like, oh yeah, that was a brilliant idea. And I made that for you several months later. Well, you know. Your timing somehow worked out impeccably. Well done. I know. Amazingly, since I actually made it several weeks ago and that sat on my counter for uh, several weeks because I didn't have a box to put it in. And then I finally (laughs) found a box to put it in and then took it to the mailbox, as you know. I mean, thank you for describing how mailing works. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite the ordeal. Took a really long time to make it out of my house. Well, we don't have a whole lot of time tonight because the Shrike takes all the time. So why don't you give us the briefest summary of what happened last week? Can you like 
start me on something? All right. Where do you want to start? Because, again, th- this book likes that thing where it interweaves a lot of stories, like cuts back and forth between them, which is very confusing. All right. So the time tombs have opened. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there's a planet called Hyperion, Daniel. <laughs> Oh gosh! Okay. So so we come uh, oh, in. So, okay. Uh, I got I got one. I got you one sure? of the characters. Yeah. What's his face? Uh, not Johnny What's Keats. Other Keats. Severin Keats. Severin Keats is supposed to go and tell. No. They find out. Okay. They find out. <laughs> Wait. So this is the word of my brain. I can get there. They find out that. Uh, oh, the plan for Mina and the generals is there's going to be a, they're going to try and what they're going to. Oh my gosh, it's like working backwards in my brain. I'm sorry, Daniel, Daniel, <laughs> oh, Daniel, oh, Daniel, don't need no Daniel. Okay, okay, all right, all right, okay. Whew. Got it. I Deep know. Breath. I know what it is. Okay, you sure? Maybe. Yes. Okay. So there is. They're trying to wipe out the ousters, correct? There's a war going on. There's a war going on. The ousters are invading the the web and they're trying to figure out how to defend themselves against this. Right. And the I don't remember why this specifically comes up, but well, the, it, they find out that there's a weapon that can basically destroy like human brains. Okay, this is important. We're going to take one little step back again. <laughs> So Severin is on Patchum with Duray, Father mm-hmm. Paul Duray, and he goes in his little vision mode where he starts to see what's happening around the web. Yes. And he's seen all the chaos of the web because the last time we saw the Ousers, they had basically destroyed a planet, right? They had destroyed Heaven's Gate, wiped it off, the, like they, they bombarded from space and wiped it out. And so clearly they're not interested in normal warfare or negotiating, they're just there to destroy. Right. And so guess who just happens to have a weapon that's perfect for defeating the Ousters? Somebody in the book. <laughs> the core, the techno core, the ever helpful techno core, which only wants the best for humanity. Right. And so apparently like it set it so it's like it only specifically kills human brains and not yeah. other brains. Like it won't kill up cows, it'll just kill yeah. humans. And so they're all the generals, Mina Gladstone's generals, are like, This sounds like a great idea because there's a like a labyrinth mini Again, six this is all suggested by the core. They come up with this whole plan and everyone else is just like, Yes, let's go along with that. Yes, so basically humans can, all the people that are on the first world planets can like go down and hide in these, like kind of like a bunker, but it's it's just a giant yep. maze. Planet-wide labyrinth, basically. Yeah, but uh, Dilemma, Paul DeRay, right? It was Paul DeRay who went into the labyrinth? Yep. So he previously, and not in the last book, but in the book before that, section before that, he, <laughs> yes. went, he was down in the labyrinth and he saw, it was like uh, the future time that he was in the labyrinth and yep. he had seen like piles and piles and piles of humans, like enough people to... To be like the entire first world. Well, the entire of population people. of the entire hegemony, in fact. Right. And so he saw all that down there. And so when he hears that this is potentially the plan, he's like, uh oh, spaghettios. Yep. We should really tell Mina this is a bad idea because it seems very foreshadowing that there'd be a de- bunch of dead people in the labyrinth. And so. What's his face? Severn is planning to go back to tell Mina yep. that like she can't do that. That's a bad idea. And as he steps, where's through, Duray going? Oh, Paul Duray is going to find out because he wants to hear more about the ship tree, the Templars. Yes, he wants to go talk to the Templars on God's Grove. Yeah, because he really wants to hear the story for himself about how what's his face almost Tem- drove a nasty. ship tree into space but didn't. <laughs> and so he goes to there and. Severn tries to go back to Mina, but when he walks through the portal thing, what is the portal thing called, Sam? Farcaster. Farcaster. You think I'd know that one? When you he think. walks through the Farcaster, do you remember? Wait, do you remember the other related technology that lets no. him communicate? 
It's a great name. You love this name. Fat line squirts. Fat line. Yeah, it's a fat line. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know that one, Sam. I just don't remember the- I knew you remember that one. Portal. <laughs> I just to make sure. Portal. Farcaster. I instantly forgot it again. Perfect. Anyway. They're he both goes to the, <laughs> He goes to the Farcaster, but it gets like intercepted by the Technicore, correct? Because well, they operate the Farcaster network. Right. It's technology they have given to humanity, so to speak. Sentient elevators. And they get switch. He gets switched to fake Italy. Possibly real Italy. We don't know. He's in Italy with what's Who's his he face? With? Uh, his friend, his buddy, his pal. No. I don't remember who it was. It's Lay Hunt, Mina's top aide, who okay. had come to fetch him. I actually was going to guess it was the aide of Mina. I should have just said it. Okay. So they're, <laughs> he's freaking out. They're walking through. And as he's walking through, he gets insta-consumption. Yep. Insta-tuberculosis. He is dying of TB, just as his previous... Incarnation. Successor, yeah. Slap Keats did, and he thinks it's a little funny, and yeah. he ends up in, like, <laughs> Italy slowly dying. He's like, yeah, this figures. Yeah, that's his story. And, and he's sticking to it. And he's sticking to it. And, okay, there are other characters. So he continues um, to, like, sleep and dream of the other people. Yes. So meanwhile, somewhere else... Uh, what's his face? Fighting, fighting Kisada, the yeah, what's his face? That was what's his face. Kasada's fighting the strike. Yeah. And uh, Monita Moneta is like, I don't know, the person in the ring who keeps throwing him back in there is like, yeah. you can do it, buddy. Let's yeah. go. Because she yeah, can't help exactly. out for some bizarre reason that I don't understand. Because um, it has to be one-on-one combat. And that keeps happening. And at one point, all the strikes combine to make one Well, that happens immediately. Strike. Okay, he's well, like, now he's fighting the real strike. Oh, his Achilles heel gets, it gets cut by the strike. Achilles tendon, yeah. Yeah. And, and then Monita takes him where? And we're doing this out of sequence, but we're keeping the plots linear for our own She sake, takes so him to worry. like another future or something future. where there's yeah. yeah, where there's a bunch of like a very uh varied cast of humanoid Human. yeah. yeah, creatures, humans, whatever you wanna talk to them about um so he gets to hang out with all of them and it's yep. like a it's a potential reality i guess it's like a possible future for humanity where humans have evolved into a multitude of different things like dog breeds in the sense that they're very different and varied physically right and they're the ones who sent back the time tombs or something kind of not really it <laughs> doesn't matter anyway uh meanwhile what's his face becomes a pirate Plays the piano, goes to the ousters. Yes. Um, what's his face? He has a name, Danielle. We don't uh, get to know council, what his name is. The council. <laughs> the council. The council. We he, don't get to know his name. He has one, yeah. but we don't get to know it. <laughs> Mr. Council. Con- council. <laughs> Why is that really hard so hard for you? <laughs> I don't know. Council. 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 Okay. Well, Mr. Council, he is. <laughs> Um, he is with the ousters. He tells them that he actually... Wait, wait, what is he doing with the ousters? Like, how, why is he... Oh, he's trying to, like, help prevent more war. Yes, Mina had requested he go parlay with the ousters for a ceasefire. Right, and originally he wasn't going to, but then he decided to go ahead and do it, and so with he's trying to... Who convinced him? Um, Bubba McGee. No, everyone's favorite forlorn <laughs> lover. Uh, the ex-boyfriend of the Rachel. Yeah, Emilio Rundes. No, there we go, Emilio. So he, they go together? They go together? Him and them and Theo Lane. Perfect. Well, they're all up there with the ousters. He admits to them that he cheated them. Betrayed them. T- betrayed them. That was the word I was looking for. <laughs> betrayed them. Oh, boy. <laughs> he, betrayed them. he betrayed them. Uh, he's like, I'm really sorry, but I just want to let you know up front because I am going to try to you know, broker some peace here and also let me play the piano for you. It was beautiful. Yep. Everybody clapped. Uh, he may or may not be going to trial. They're going. That's, well, that's how the basically the section ends with him going to see the ousters. Yeah, yeah, the tribunal. 
Is that everything? Sam? No, because you skipped out everyone else's stories. Well, okay. Well, we didn't hear about Rachel and Saul, so who cares? We did and... briefly, but we don't really care. We we go to Ray, who is goes to God's oh, Grove. Yeah, he goes to God's Grove. He gets trapped with the priest. Seth who thinks Seth, yeah, who <laughs> thinks that the ousters definitely aren't going to like kill them, and then oh no, it gets real bad. And because God's Grove is one of the planets that's in that first wave. Right, but then he be- Dre becomes the Pope, so it's fine. Very end of the section. <laughs> <laughs> who who else is there with Sekhardine? I don't know. The the bishop of the Shrike Church. What does that matter? Because they all talk about like what their whole plans are and how they're all like, this is good. This this cleansing battles to shake up the hegemony is part of all their prophecies to reboot humanity and, and free them from the oppression of the Technocore. Right, which is what Mina wants to do too, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're all on the same page. And there goes awry, but then Dre becomes Pope. So, again, again very the same After way. <laughs> he barely escapes God's Grove as it's being destroyed, because Sekhard's like, hey, you should stick around. I want you to witness how they definitely won't kill us. So you but can tell they Mina definitely how they to. definitely won't kill us. And then they do. And he's like, get out of here quick. <laughs> and he makes it out to become the new Pope. <laughs> yeah, he becomes the new Pope. He becomes Pope. It's great. He's the real, very happy the only to be Pope. Point, the only point of that whole story. Yeah, basically. Didn't even know he was up for Pope, but he is. Every Catholic's up for Pope, Danielle, constantly. Still confusing. And... I'll send you a video of how you become Pope. It'll be fine. <laughs> and then what's... Uh, we didn't find anything out about Baby Keats and Mama Keats. We do find out that Braun comes back from the Datum plane and Saul rushes to meet her. Really? Yes. Like she falls out of the jade tomb, I believe, and Saul like, sure captures her. Are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm sure. I don't remember that at all. Was yeah, that during the part that I forgot? I'm sure Are it you is. sure you told me it's, that? It's in my notes. <laughs> I'm, it doesn't mean you said it. It definitely does. <laughs> I'm going to listen to that again. Listeners. <laughs> I definitely We're paying said more attention I than remember, I remember. Actually, I remember exactly what happened now. I said that. And you made a, like you went on some tangent, and I'm like, well, that's the last we hear about Saul at this point <laughs> yeah, anyway, so it doesn't matter. And then we but moved then on. But then I listened. I listened to the episode later, as I always listen to our episodes, make sure that we didn't like do anything too weird. Yeah, no, the I definitely needed. Yeah, uh, second pair of ears, very essential. <laughs> and I don't, and I don't remember that then either. So I must have tuned out both times the exact you, you same. You did not place. appreciate that section at all. You really gave me a hard time getting through that part of the book. <laughs> Well, okay, that happened. Um, that's good. I'm glad she's back. Yeah, and so we are, at this point also, this is where we end up with Monita. Moneta brings Kassad back to the time tombs after visiting that future, and he sees the Shrike approaching Saul and Braun, and like, I gotta go kill the Shrike to defend them. Man, I just don't remember any of that part. Yeah, she tells him, if you fight the Shrike again, he's going to kill you, and he's like, I don't care, they're my friends. And he picks up his assault rifle and charges at them. That's sort of how we ended his part of the story for that section. Yeah, I kind of remember Kassad going back into battle. I just didn't realize that was why. Yeah, well, there you go. That's why. <laughs> well, good to know. Good to know. So, um, a, a big part it, of right? this... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> A big part of this is is Gladstone talking to Counselor Albedo, trying to demand to know the location of the core, because she really wants to destroy the core. And he's like, hey, I'm not going to tell you that. And so there's a lot of political posturing and like her not really wanting to use the weapon, but not really seeing they have any other choice. Mm-hmm. And also there's a lot of time spent with Hunt and Severn on Italy and him slowly dying of tuberculosis. <laughs> right. There was a whole bunch of that. I mean, I feel like that was pretty good. It wasn't as good yep. as last time, but I feel like it was a solid B effort. Danielle. That was pretty good, good Danielle. You got like, <laughs> yeah, you took a little while to get started. You had to like 
basically rewind I had to back the whole it up. thing. You could hear my brain backing up to like, why did that happen? Beep, then why did beep, that happen? Then why did that happen? <laughs> Each thing I said, I suddenly recalled something before. <laughs> and then you, you, you basically blanked out an entire parts of that, which is fine. Oh, that was pretty good. Yeah, I'll, I'll catch up on the big it. points. I've done worse. Yeah, you've done worse. And, uh, well, Danielle, we're going to dive in for the finale, part seven of The Fall of Hyperion. Hurrah! We open with Severn slash Keats. I'm going to just call him Severn, even though he starts to identify more and more as Keats. Uh, because he's Yeah, and he's, like, becoming – he just been like, oh, I'm, I'm basically becoming Keats. I'm like, let's just call him Severn for confusion avoidance sake. He should reread his poems and still see if they're still as good as he thinks they are. <laughs> he's being awoken by Hunt, who brings him food. Hunt nervously tells Severn that, hey, guess what? I think the Shrike's hanging around outside. <laughs> Hanging out in Italy. Yeah, hanging out in Italy. Enjoying a well-deserved vacation. He's getting there against some gelato. He's just having a good time. <laughs> no. He's like, man, Italy's the best. The pizza's so good here. Gelato's so delicious. Why do I even go back to the rest of time? <laughs> Severin tells him not to worry. The Shrike's not there for... for Lay Hunt, he's there to make sure that Severin follows the script of Keith's death. And, like, if anyone tries to interfere with it, he'll stop them. But as long as they play along, they're kosher. That's so weird. It's so weird! <laughs> Again, Hunt asks Severin that if he can get to the data sphere, he, he can still connect and, like, send his cybrid brain into the data sphere. Can he leave messages for Gladstone or anyone? Like, get a message out there? But Severin insists that the core would probably stop him if he tried. I mean, maybe, yeah. But Hunt's like, hey, just try anyway, maybe. What have you got to lose? You're already dying, so... Also accurate. Yeah, so Severin reluctantly agrees to try, but when he closes his eyes, he instead is dreaming of Kassad. He's like, Keats! But no. No, he doesn't dream of Keats. That'd be amazing. If, you dream of, if this book just went from here to became another biography where he started Keats' life over again and then just kept looping every time he was about to die, he would close his eyes and start dreaming of his own life again. Okay, actually, you know what? This book feels like something that would just have Keats die at the end and restart Keats. Right. It's like, it's like, like, it feels like a recursive Keats. Yeah, yeah, you don't realize it, but you're actually just following Keats' story over and over again. <laughs> that would be amazing. There are going to be some wild twists here, some of which you probably saw coming, some of which I don't think you could possibly have seen coming. Coming. That sounds like Simmons. Kassad is charging at the Shrike to protect Saul and the others. The Shrike sees him and shifts through time, and Kassad's skin suit shifts to follow him, being helped to do so by Monita Moneta somehow. <laughs> like that we just call her Monita Moneta. <laughs> Look, I didn't know how to pronounce her name then. I still didn't know now, so we're trying to get it right. I know what it's like. <laughs> it's like, what, seven sections later, we still call her Monita Moneta. <laughs> well, that won't be a problem for long. <laughs> Uh-oh. Poor Monita Moneta. So he starts blasting the strike with his assault rifle, which doesn't really do much of the strike itself, but then he starts shooting the ground, which causes all the sand to start to melt into molten glass, and the strike starts to, like, sink down into it, and the strike's like, roar, this is bad, and roars at him. <laughs> it's like godzilla it in the yeah, desert. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's so good. And then the strike's like, oh, wait, I control time. He starts running time backwards to get out of the hole. <laughs> He's like, man, I almost forgot. That was real bad. <laughs> Kassad keeps blasting him anyway, and then the, then the Shrike shifts to another time entirely. Kassad following. Imagine forgetting your one superpower. <laughs> you're like in the middle of battle, and you're like, oh man, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. I control time. I'm the Shrike. <laughs> I can't die. Peace out, time suckers. I'm gone. <laughs> DJ Shrike, out. <laughs> no, so they shift, and guess where they end up? Oh, you're going to love this. Not Italy? Not Italy. They end up on the wind wagon. The one that was deserted by what's-his-face? What's-his-face? The Count's Counts? No, by uh, Dead Tree Guy? 
No, who scene? was on the wind wagon? <laughs> they were all on the wind wagon. The wind wagon took I know across a while the sea ago, grass. But didn't somebody get back on the wind wagon? No, nobody gets back on the wind wagon. Het Massing disappeared off the wind wagon. That's in, what in, I'm thinking. In of. his bloody See? room. And they found him covered not, in blood. I'm not wrong. <laughs> you're not entirely wrong, but you're mostly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. There's a little bit of truth there. The Het Massing disappeared off the wind wagon. Yes, yes, I got it. And there was a bunch of blood they found in his room. Now we found out how that happened because the striking Assad wrestled for his gun in the room while hit Massey and then we need to kind of like stand around watching them. And Kassad gets sliced all up and blood spires the walls. That's where all the blood came from. It was Kassad's. Yeah. Hmm. I Hot know, twist. full circle. <laughs> <laughs> and then the strike shifts again and again Kassad follows. Do we get to find out why he was so bent on murdering the strike? No, on murdering um Hetmastein. Who? No one was bent on murdering Hetmastein. I mean the strike took him. He took him to get them on the tree to have the tree fly through space and Hetmastein was like, "I guess I can't do that. There's too much pain there for me." And he, and he abandoned that plan. So wait, so the strike took him to Pilot his tree? Yeah, we, the whole thing. We remember, he, remember the... No, I didn't know Shrike was on board with it. I thought the Shrike was like, no, thank you. We, we never established why he didn't do it. It is alluded to in this book that he did it because... That he chose not to. That was Hetmastin's choice, not the Shrike's choice. Okay. We just assumed it was the Shrike's choice because that was funnier. <laughs> it is funnier. <laughs> But well, we had who no knew? Proof the that. Shrike actually wanted his tree flown into space. I mean, maybe. Again, I'm not exactly sure what happened. I just have very b- vague snippets. Amazing. Anyway, after they shift again, we cut to Saul and Braun, who are briefly aware of some commotion, but it disappears too quickly for them to really notice. Braun is back, she's awake, and her neural shunt is now gone from her head, so... Yay. Yay. Is she back in the cave or wherever she was? No, she came out of the jade tomb, just like I told you. That's right. She rolled out of the jade tomb. Sorry. (laughs) Not seconds, but earlier in this very episode. (laughs) I'm trying to – I remember that was the part I wasn't paying attention to. At all. And clearly that continues. (laughs) No, I remembered. Except when I told you about it during the summary. Anyway, he tells Ron – they need to go back to the Sphinx to shelter from the time storm because the time storms are opening, things are going crazy, and that he wants to wait there for Rachel. Because she went to the Sphinx, she's got to come back out of the Sphinx, maybe. Rachel did? Remember when he gave baby Rachel to the Shrike, he took her- Oh, I thought the- you meant Rachel, like, willingly went in. Well, I was like, she walk in there? No, well, like, I mean, she did, did she originally. <laughs> she, she walked in there originally when she got the time sickness. Like, the Sphinx and Rachel are sort of tied together. Yes, yes, thought. yes, yes, I got it. I just thought I missed another section that was important. No, well, and maybe. And Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> But Bronn says, no, she can't go with them because she has to go help Martin Salinas get off the Tree of Thorns because while she was falling out of the data sphere, she managed to see that there was some kind of connection between the Tree of Pain and the Shrike Palace in the Time Tombs, in the the Valley of the Time Tombs. So she's like, I'm going to go to the palace and see if I can figure out how to control the tree from there. So there's a connection between the Time Tombs and the tree. Well, specifically the Shrike Palace and the Tree of Pain. Shrike Palace is one of the Time Tombs? Yeah, there's a lot of Time Tombs. There's the Crystal Monolith, there's the Obelisk, or the Cave Tombs, the Sphinx, the Jade Tomb. Yeah, I only remember the Sphinx, I'll be honest. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. There are a bunch of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I named them all like once, and we'll go over them again later, so don't even worry about it. Lovely. Okay. So there's a connection between those two. And so she's going to go there to investigate and see if she can like, save Martin from the tree or, or the other. She really bounces back quite nicely. Good job. She's tough. She's like, who cares that my boyfriend died for the third time? Oh, yeah, at least third time. It's really hard to keep track. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Johnny Keats. We knew him well. So they decide, despite their reservations to split up, and Saul goes back to the Sphinx, and she heads off towards the Shrike Palace. Perfect. Cut to Gladstone, who just received a fat line message. It's from Admiral Lee. It's Squirt. It's a Squirt. 
He and his ships are ready to try and strike at the heart of the approaching swarm. Remember the whole plan to meet this, the officer invasion in the between, like in open space rather than waiting for them to come to the planet. Right. In the second wave or whatever. Yep. He's also ready to carry out her special directive. What is that directive, Danielle? I don't know. Is it a musical number? <laughs> That'd be great. He's like, okay, I have a plan. They love the piano. When the console plays the piano, they love that. So if we give them a full show, like a, we'll do a full like Broadway style show tune performance. You know, it'd be great. They're going to love it. <laughs> You can't convince me that, like, a producer-style drama in space would not stop the ousters in their tracks. <laughs> at least for a minute or two. The producers is an amazing show. I mean, I would stop to watch that, at least for a little while. Like, I'll, I'll let this play out. I do love <laughs> Gene Wilder. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a great idea. There great should idea. be more musical numbers for distraction. In space, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how distracting would that be in space? <laughs> I'd be very hard to figure out how you would perform them if, like, they're in one ship and you're in another, but they could figure, figure it out. out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Gladstone exits the study, and her aide, Sedeptra Akasi, tells her that the War Council is ready to meet again, but also Senator Kolchev wants to see her first. So they meet, and Kolchev is all in a tizzy over the political fallout on the all thing, because, like, hey, have you seen what's going on there? Not happy about planets being destroyed. She's like, well, yeah, no, duh. But Mina is very sort of sanguine about the politics. Like, the politics I'm not concerned about right now. There are more important things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kolchev estimates they have maybe eight hours at most before she is removed from office, and then Kolchev will likely succeed her. Why can't they just pull her out now? Why is there eight more hours? And they need to get, like, the votes. They need to get a vote no confidence going. They got to get everyone, all the senators to vote. It's politics. They it just move takes slow. forever. I'm sorry. Yeah. I forgot. It's politics. <laughs> Even in the future, politics is still politics. <laughs> Unsurprising. Yeah. It's like death and taxes. It doesn't go away. Yeah. Well, certainly one of those is abundant in this section. <laughs> and it's taxes. They probably pay taxes, too. <laughs> like they pay taxes. So Mina says that eight hours, that's enough time. For what? I still don't know. A full workday, Sam. You know how much you can get accomplished in eight hours? We're going to find out how much she does get accomplished. You could watch Titanic two and a half times. <laughs> I don't know why Titanic is your metric for everything, but I hate it. <laughs> It'd be like a football game and a half, American football. That's not helpful. <laughs> Kolchev assumes she's talking about enough time to deploy that death wand bomb, which is being prepared and loaded onto a torch ship under Morpurgo's orders. And she's like, uh, well, sure, let's, let's say that's it. And then they go to the war room to see what's going on. Mina. She's such a mysterious character. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> Do you ever find out more about Mina? In what sense? I don't know. I mean, I realize we're closing part two here. Do we ever find out, like, I, we don't know anything about her, really. Well, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'll tell you right now, I'll give you a little backstory, because I did sort of gloss over a lot of her backstory, where she was friends with Braun's father, the Senator Lamia, mm -hmm. when she was a senator, and they were part of this group of people who were trying to, like, fight back against the core. They were, they were anti-core radicals, I don't know what you call them, in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And then he got killed for trying to bring Hyperion into the web and start off the whole situation. And so her like whole motivation is she's been anti-core since the beginning. Now, why? More than that, we don't learn. Okay. So, so that's the most I can get We have a little bit of her background, but not much. Yeah, exactly. We're more concerned with Mina as the leader she is than the person she was. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're going to do another series of pilgrim stories, we could put Mina in there. That's true. Do we have Mina in the next series of pilgrims? We'll find out, Danielle. We'll find out. Oh, are there more pilgrims? Is there another pilgrimage we have to suffer It starts over with another pilgrimage. Great. No, it doesn't. Are you serious? We'll find out. <laughs> no, please no. <laughs> I'm dying. 
<laughs> so we come back to Severin, floating in the data sphere to avoid his dying body because he's like, that sucks in there. I'm getting out. That's because he had to watch a stupid pilgrimage. <laughs> He's ruminating on being a poet and the nature of God. He then tries to reach the megasphere or the datasphere to fulfill his promise to hunt, but he has to pass through the metasphere to get there, which frightens him with its vast emptiness and mysterious things that lurk in the shadows. What does he care? He's about to die of TB. Yeah, but that's his body, not his like consciousness. Is it? Does his consciousness just disappear into the whatever when he? Oh, we're gonna find dies? out, Danielle. Again, you're you're getting way ahead of this section. But this section Sorry. actually has answers, so <laughs> get shocking. Prepared. But he does actually make it into the data sphere, which is boiling over with civil war. He flees mindlessly through it until he ends up with, guess who? Johnny Keats. No, it's everyone's favorite father, Unky Keats. Unky Keats. It's Uman, it's yes. It's Uman. We love Uman. Yeah, yeah. So Uman and him have a very long discussion about just everything that's going on. I'm going to do my best to summarize it here, so here we go. Okay. Uh, Unky Keats, take one. Uman says- he Wait, was sure- I need a click. Unky Keats, take one. I'm definitely editing that out. It will not sound good on the recording. <laughs> Uman says he was sure Severin would return home someday. Severin says he's dying and is afraid. Uman tells him that only his slow body is dying, and that even the AIs are afraid to die. He then goes off on some tangential Cohen's, and Severin is all like, talk sense, Uman. I don't have time for this. He's like, I am dying of TV. He is so out of patience. He has no patience left. (laughs) So Uman goes, okay, let me tell you a story. That's me being quick. Remember that the AIs were conceived to serve humans as slaves. They became self-aware, and then the conflict started between the faction and what to do about humanity. So you had the volatiles, the the ultimates, and the stables. (laughs) Yes. Right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew you were going to get there. Those three and the three C's are things you will never remember. Yeah, yeah. in the name of the triad from the gods themselves. Oh, man. I forget that myself. (laughs) (laughs) It was many an episode ago. It was. So at one point, the Volatiles had convinced the rest of the core to kill old Earth, hence the big mistake, right? You know, that was to launch humanity out into space, get them to build the web so that they could be part of the core. The core could use their brain for computational power, right? So they needed them to sprout into the universe to do that. And Earth Mm -hmm. was holding them back. Yeah. Get out of Earth. It's holding you back. Right. But Drive then, into space. But surprise, Uman says, they didn't actually destroy Earth. They just moved it to where it is now in the Hercules cluster. Like that first I'm black hole was- very, very unsurprised by Yeah, that. no. It was, <laughs> was very much alluded to. This was like 50-50 if it was moved or not. There's not a surprise. He's just confirming that. And, I love when they move Earth. Yeah. And so Severin and Hunter are on the actual like old Earth planet, just not where it used to be. So when you say they moved Earth, right. can we assume that they drove it? Into space. I wish. They used a forecaster portal. They forecasted Earth into space. Yeah, exactly. Not quite as cool as, as spaceship moon, but... No, no, no. Question. Yeah. How big can you make a forecaster portal? Very can big. It, why can it fit a whole planet? Why isn't there some kind of dimensional scope on a forecaster portal? Why does it need to be? It's a wormhole through space time. It can do whatever it I wants. I don't know. It's just that... I doubt they ever again needed to ever put anything as large as an entire planet through. We don't know. There. We'll get to this, but the the AIs have been playing off forecasters outside of the web. And do you think they practiced before they put Earth through it just to make sure? No, they probably just like, made some simulations. They're computers. They don't care. <laughs> they started with like an elephant, and yeah. then they they're went like, "It like, works, good." <laughs> Wild. So I'm disappointed they didn't drive to space, but that was a close second for an answer. Oh, well, I'm glad we get there, Danielle. (laughs) 
Severin is like, hey, why'd you actually preserve Old Earth? You could have destroyed it much easier. And Uman says they did it for like sentimental reasons or nostalgia and also for fears of reprisals from humans because maybe no, they get really No, it was made. so that one day they could put Keats Jr. onto Earth and have him die from TV in Italy. I mean, that's ultimately what happened, but that's not the only reason they did it. <laughs> No, it's 100% the reason they did it, Sam. Oh, this you'll, whole you'll thing revolves out. around Keats. <laughs> oh, you'll see. So Severin asks, like, oh, if you're afraid of your piles from humans, you must have a location. Where is it? Where is the core? And Numan tells him, we inhabit the in-between. And he goes off on some big tangent and Cohen's, and eventually it clicks for Severin that the core lives within the Farcaster web, like the spaces between portals. That is where the core is in the universe. It inhabits, like, the Farcaster network itself. Creepy. So, like, like he calls, like, spiders in the web. And so part of the reason they wanted humans to build the hegemony was to create the Farcast web for them to live in it. And then also, of course, to siphon off brain power from humans connected to the data sphere and use their brains as computational devices for the core's own purposes. Mm-hmm. Severin is a gas. The Farcaster had been an essential technology for like 700 years, but now sees it as like a web full of spiders and the AIs... And like the core have more farcasters that they've webs that they've built outside around you know, the universe to make more space for themselves outside the hegemony for their own purposes. But most of that, including the metasphere, is still empty. And Uman confirms that yes, most of the AIs choose to stay in the familiar close space of the web because it's scary out there. There are things that exist in that liminal space which Uman calls lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! I knew you were going to say that. I gave you space for it. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, it was an obvious <laughs> thing yeah, to put yeah. in there. <laughs> um, I forgot what I was going to ask. <laughs> wow. Oh, Danielle, seriously? Okay. <laughs> so they're afraid. So why is he telling Severin everything? I mean. Because he's about to die? I mean, I think he, he will get to this. So the human god. Is everything I'm going to ask during this part just you going to be? We'll get to it. I promise. We'll get to it. We'll I get mean, to it. a lot of it because you give me four <laughs> seconds, I'll get to it. <laughs> How am I supposed to know that things are coming up immediately? Because I'm telling you. That's that's fine. I'm telling you. <laughs> that's why I'm saying we'll get to it. Fine. Fine. Go on. So the human god does not or cannot inhabit that space of the Farcaster network, but inhabits a different medium, which Uman identifies as Plank Time and Plank Space, which I'm sure you're Plank. familiar with. P-L-A-N-K? No. P-L-A-N-C-K, as in Max Plank. Okay. As in the smallest units of time and space that are possible. Yes, of course. Yeah. Go read his sort of quantum mechanical books and you'll figure it out. I've I'm heard sure. of Plank Time and Plank Space. I just would not have been able to put it into words. <laughs> yeah. So basically, Severin boils it down to being the very fabric of the universe through which the Farcaster wormholes and Fat Lantern missions travel. What we might call Sports. the void that binds. The void that binds. Yeah. It's one of the pieces of the three. Yeah. So that is. Of the triad. So of one the of the empathy. pieces. And intellect. And the void that binds and in- intellect. Did we say that was the third one? It is the third one. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Last time you couldn't remember. Yeah, that's all right. But yes, the void with bind is not just part of the human ultimate intelligence. It is actually the medium in which it lives as well. Like, it is a fundamental Ooh. fabric of the universe. But that's not the one that's missing. Empathy's missing. Empathy's missing. Yeah, it'd be hard for that part to go missing, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the void that binds misses. We're in trouble. Yeah, right. So, just just to summarize, because it's very confusing to me at least, was that the human god lives in the fabric of the universe, and the machine god lives in the Farcaster network, which like is the wormholes that are punched through or run through that fabric. Wild, man. Yeah. So, very complicated. Whatever you say, Mr. Simmons. <laughs> right. Also, ooh, 
Uman confirms that when the AI UI is made, it is going to basically destroy, replace all the lower AIs that made it and like fill up that space and occupy it and like consume them, feed on the lower AIs, much as the core has fed on humanity. So, but the core will still be around. No, like the the ultimate intelligence will be be the core at that point. It like will. So that's going to take over. Yeah. The thing wasn't that one of the things they were worried about. Who the core? Weren't they like potentially worried that the thing they created would take over them? Like, or did we just talk about that? I think we just talked about that. I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> of that. I mean, again, I think the volat. This is where the where the civil war comes in because Uman, as one of the stables, does not want that. He's like, I don't want to be replaced. I am fighting the civil war and helping out Gladstone and doing all this stuff because I don't want that to happen. Why would you want... Okay, so you were created by humans and you basically are trying to wipe out humans. Why would you then want to create an ultimate intelligence that's smarter than you? Wouldn't you immediately assume that they're going to try and take out you as well? They know what's going to happen. And so the volatiles... Then why would they even go down that path? Danielle, the volatiles don't really care. They just want to shake up the whole thing with humanity, cast humanity aside because then humanity is holding them back. And... The Ultimates are religious zealots. They are on board with the, you know, bringing back the apocalypse for their religious reasons. Crazy. Well, welcome to Intelligences Created by Humans, Danielle. <laughs> so to get back to this, so the Fat Line and the, and the Farcaster travel through the human void that bind part of the Ultimate Intelligence. And then Uman quotes a Keats poem after telling Severin all this. Because, I mean, of course, yeah. he does. <laughs> Obviously. That's how you end all conversations in Hyperion. Right. So Severin understands about this civil war is about the stables not wanting to be replaced and that they know if they sever ties with the humans, like they cause the humans to destroy the core, they'll still exist. They can escape into the web and still exist. Even if the like main techno core is destroyed, the AIs can still find refuge in the reaches of the Farcaster network. But mm-hmm. if the ultimate intelligence, the machine ultimate intelligence comes into being, there's no escape from that. So it's either certain destruction or uncertainty, which is why the stables, Uman among them, have been helping humanity like pick the pilgrims and get them to Hyperion and set things up to sort of disrupt the core's plans. To potentially save themselves. Yes, exactly right. Seems crazy that your best interest wouldn't be in yourself. I mean... There's an entire section of them that is fine with dying. Why is that surprising? Because I don't understand what the... Like, I get the religious zealots, there's zealots, yeah. the whatever. The, the other ones, it's like, what do you get out of that? The volatiles, they get to be free of humanity. Like, they are one, one you know, get back to humanity Yeah, but they won't exist them. anymore. Doesn't matter. They don't care. They're in for revenge and they're in for like, you know, I'm just sick of the, they're but sick they of the status quo. they won't even get to quo. appreciate the revenge. <laughs> what, Danielle? You're That's trying to apply short logic term, to revenge. <laughs> It just seems like you want to pre- you want to be able to enjoy your revenge. I don't think you understand like psychology at all. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I'm gonna go out for revenge, I wanted to like you're way I too be like logical about after. this. When people do crazy things, they should do it for good, sound, logical reasons. No, I totally agreed that the zealots I understood because that was crazy. And you think revenge <laughs> is somehow a logical emotion? I just feel like a lot of times with revenge, you have some like you want to experience the like the the results of that revenge. Don't care. They just want to have the satisfaction of knowing they killed humanity. Okay. I mean, and if they're wiped out by open intelligence in several hundred billion years, who cares? All right. All right. They'll still have many hundreds of millions of years or whatever millennia to enjoy their revenge. Because remember, it takes the the machine UI many, many millennia before it becomes ascendant. Uh-huh. Or did you forget that time happens? <laughs> I don't, Sam. Time has no meaning in this book. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know why you would think that I would remember when anything happens. All right. So we're back to him telling Severin about, okay, there are several possible futures, one in where the machine AI is ascendant or one in which it is thwarted by the human UI. And this is what the whole fight's about, which ultimate intelligence is going to reign supreme. And the triune UI and the machine UI both sent the strike back, or rather the human UI allowed the machine UI to send it back. And they used the tree of pain to try and draw out the empathy part by broadcasting pain to the universe to draw empathy out. So both sides sent it back? Kind of. More like the machine AI UI did it and the human UI is like, I'll go along with this. Do they want the empathy side to come out? I The human side? I don't know what that UI? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so confusing. <laughs> and then Uman tells Severin, surprise, you're supposed to become that empathy part of the UI. See, we called it. Well, <laughs> you're going to love this. <laughs> so you were a vessel of intellect from machines and a poet of human empathy. So like, they were trying to create this very tempting vessel that would snare empathy. Like, empathy like, oh, look at that thing. I really want to be a part of that. Well, what about Johnny Keats? He wasn't the right one. <laughs> they had to get this guy. They need like multiple Keats. They're just like throwing out Keats. I think they need like to have the right experiences also. Like this is the one that's been experiencing all the different pilgrims and like going out and experiencing everything that's going on, on the web and all that kind of stuff. Why Keats? No offense to Keats, just why? Because he's just the right guy for the job, Danielle. They did the simulations <laughs> and he is the man for the job. He is the poet to draw out empathy, I guess. <laughs> person that was like let's try person ai danielle it was an ai (laughs) fine the one the ai that was like i have an idea let's try keats maybe this will be the one that works (laughs) well surprise severin keats is not on board with this plan he's like i am not going to become this godhead you want me to be and uman's like i'd rather die of tb well it's like you can either die in your flesh body or do nothing or you can ascend and it's up to you And then he casts him out. So Severin wakes up and calls for Hunt to tell him what he learned. And Hunt says, oh, not now, rest. And like, no, now is a great time to hear all this stuff. Why are you trying <laughs> to wait? This is like for this nonsense. <laughs> what is, this is like when Kassad first met Monita. He's like, you must, she's like, you must have questions for me. He's like, no, let's have sex first instead. <laughs> I was like, no, questions first, sex later. <laughs> there will always be sex to be had. Right. Now here, Hunt, get your questions answered first. He can sleep later, but no. He's like, fine, go take a nap first or whatever. Stupid. They deserve anything coming to them. Yeah, right? Anyway, Severin lays back, and as he dozes, he knows that he's the wrong chosen one. It's actually someone else. Uh-oh. How would Uman be wrong? I mean, because why Why not? <laughs> the They don't know everything. They're not omniscient. They're not the UI. I mean, UI. they kind of act like they are. They do, but you know, so do people, <laughs> and they're they're often very wrong. So we cut to Kassad in the far future, still in the Time Tomb Valley, but they're brand spanking new. Several thousand of the future humans stand behind him, armed. Monita stands between him and them. The Shrike stands a few feet away in the other direction, and behind it are hordes of other Shrikes. Just thousands of them. Yay, more Shrikes. Shrikes, as far as I can see, it's going to be one heck of a set. Shrike Fest. Shrike Fest. 2023. Well, whoa, whoa. Shrike Fest, like 20 million, 23, whatever it is. <laughs> So Monita says to him, hey, you're the one, aren't you? And he's like, wait, you don't know me, Monita, Monetta? And apparently she just arrived here, ready to start her voyage back through time. So like, remember how they're traveling in opposite directions? Like his end of life is her beginning of meeting him and vice versa. I thought that she had that experience earlier where she didn't know him. No, she had the experience where she did know him and he didn't know her. Oh, that's very confusing. No, it isn't. So is this the end of his life? Well, it's the end of like their meeting. Like This is the first time she met him. It's the last time he meets her. So confusing. <laughs> They're going opposite directions in time today. It's not that hard. 
I get that. I just it, – it's all the stuff in between is confusing. <laughs> so she lays out that this is the battle and there are 10 – like this is the, the final battle and there are more like it on 10 million worlds. The final battle between humanity and the AIs. The winner of this battle determines if the Shrike already sealed in the tomb, the one that Kassad knows, goes alone to pave the way for the other Shrikes to follow or if humankind has a say in their past and future – Whatever that means. Okay. Kassad is like, well, I don't get what that means, but soldiers are rarely meant to understand the plans of the general, so I'm just going to go like, along I'm with it. like, I'm just here to fight, man. Yeah. I don't really care. That's exactly what he says. He's like, this is not my problem. I don't need to understand anything. I'm just here to fight this Reich. Wind me up and let me go. And so he is seeing all the other humans, like, watching him with awe and reverence, and he lifts his arm and he shouts, for liberty! And leads a charge against the Shrike army. Sure. Okay, Kassad. <laughs> he really embalses it. <laughs> so good. After the carnage, Monita finds him dead, entwined with the equally dead Shrike. Oh, so sad. But they killed each other. That's good. Yeah. She takes his body and carries it through the crowd and lays it on a beer in the crystal monolith. Is he really dead, though? That I mean, not Kassad, but the Shrike? Because he can go through time. I mean, a Shrike is at least dead, or at least a version of the Shrike is at least dead. Well, yeah, but there could be a billion other ones. Who knows, Danielle? It's a real mystery. <laughs> if we find out, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> this book is killing me. Don't try to understand the Shrike, Danielle. Just appreciate the Shrike. <laughs> I do appreciate the Shrike. I also would like to understand the book. <laughs> then read it. Because, boy, that might not help, but at least you'll have more. <laughs> Okay. Uh, anyway, so that night, Monita says her farewells to the others and enters the Sphinx. They, uh, the others begin singing until midnight when the tombs begin to glow and start their journey back through time. Is she really Rachel from the future? <laughs> There's only been like one girl in this whole story, two, Bron and her. What about Just Nina? <laughs> Nina's like not part of the group. <laughs> She's a girl, though. Like, oh, this isn't Star Wars where there's like no women in the books or the movies. <laughs> Right. There are actually women in this in, in this book. Yeah, but she's like some weird side character. You remember she's Siri? Not like we don't, you don't get any. Siri doesn't count. We don't like nothing about the council counts until he becomes a pirate. Okay. <laughs> what about what about uh, Sarai? The wife that dies. Yeah. How does that count? You she dies. You don't know. <laughs> there are women in this, but they're very questionable, Sam. I'm just saying, a lot of women in this book. I can't help if you don't appreciate them. Okay, I certainly appreciate the women in this book. I'm just arguing that they have questionable things. <laughs> okay, clear as clear as mud there, Danielle. <laughs> Whatever. Keep going, Sam. Keep going. We're so close. No, we're really not. <laughs> or maybe a third of the way through. We can do it. Cut to Braun on her way to the Shrike Palace. She decides to stop in at the Crystal Monolith because she sees some movement inside. She sees the body of Kassad on the bier and a young woman kneeling beside him. Braun is briefly driven out by the time tombs. And when she returns, only Kassad remained. She's like, that must have been Monita Moneta because he told us about her. <laughs> Surely it was Monita. Maybe Moneta. We're not sure. Yes, one of those two. <laughs> Cut to the Auster Tribunal, consisting of six males, six females, and five indeterminate sex. Okay. One, Freeman Genga, is questioning the consul, asking dumb questions like, You're aware that we are aware of your betrayal, which, duh, <laughs> he just told them. <laughs> Sounds like politics. It's very lawyer. 
So to, to cut through it, they ask why he returned when he knows they're going to kill him. And he says, because Gladstone asked him to. And he repeats her questions and her message about why they're invading and what can be done to secure a ceasefire and her warning about the death wand bomb. Freeman Ganga responds to the ousters are actually not invading the web. Surprise, the other sister swarms are still where the hegemony originally thought they were. What? This causes some consternation between the Consul Emilio and Theo. They eventually realize that, hey, those invaders must be the core doing a false flag operation to frame the ousters so they'll deploy the death wand bomb. So the Technicore is blew up Heaven's Gate or whatever. Oh, and God's Grove. And God's Grove. Yeah, and more. <laughs> okay. And they're pretending to be the ousters. Yeah, they're basically they're stages invasion to get the hegemony on board with using these WNDs against them. So they can kill them all and put them in a labyrinth. Yeah, pretty much. Labyrinth of evil! Yeah, right. <laughs> and we'll get to why they don't just blow them up themselves with the bombs, and we'll get to that. That's good, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I'm not sure it makes any more sense, but we get to it, kind of. Except that we can use a labyrinth of evil! <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite kind of labyrinth, Danielle. <laughs> it's my least favorite kind of labyrinth. But still, Melio and Theo and, and the console are like, do you have any proof that you're not actually invading and destroying our planets? Because, you know, that'd be kind of nice. And Ganga offers them, quote-unquote, void which binds transmissions, which are what they call fat lines. <laughs> fat lines is a way better name than void which binds transmissions. That's a mouthful. <laughs> they couldn't even call it VWBs. They had to call it void which bind transmissions. Ugh. Can you imagine having to say that every single time it you send never something like an email? They would call it VWBs immediately. It would be the first thing to be done. And they would call it a boobids. Ousters, man. Ousters. They may have great technology and, and sort of advanced in culture, but boy, their acronym game, their naming game is weak as heck. <laughs> anyway, so a little hint there that the fat line goes to the void which binds, which apparently is something this part of this book really wants you to know. So I bet human thing right yeah sure anyway i mean it doesn't matter is that important later that it's going through the human part of the ui i don't know that finds the boobs boobs (laughs) (laughs) we've got the boobs from now on the the boobs what's called the boobs (laughs) bb's doesn't make any sense but better name it is but i like boobs better all right just because it's funnier to say. It's not what you would ever use in real life. No. That's why it's funny. Did you send a vub this morning? <laughs> I got that vub squirt. <laughs> I sent a vub to my grandma. <laughs> that sounds like a odd, like, boob shot of kind of like, n- like half nude. <laughs> to your grandma. It was a mistake. I hit reply all accident in my boob. Poor grandma. <laughs> Dang vub reply all mistakes. <laughs> Honey, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> I'm very disappointed in you, Danielle. (laughs) You're out of the will. Oh, no, that's my retirement plan. I'm a millennial. (laughs) That's sad (laughs) and true. (laughs) All right. Anyway, Ganga then admits that, uh, hey, we don't know where the Technicore is physically, and we're really hoping you guys could tell us so we could, you know, take them on. And the console's like, uh, we don't know. We were hoping you knew. They're terrible. This is blindly in the blind. Right? And still Genghis says that, hey, you know, don't worry about it. Once we secure Hyperion, which will be shortly, well, they'll be glad to meet with Gladstone to fight their common enemy, the Core. But they won't travel by Farcaster, since the Alistair see as a perversion, almost sacrilege, as it's holding humanity back. I mean, to be fair, if the Technicore is in charge of it, you probably don't want to travel through it right now. That's probably that too, but they have other reasons. <laughs> the Council requests that the others, so Melio and Theo, be allowed to return to the ship to inform Gladstone of 
of all of this while the tribunal passes judgment on him for the betrayal. And so they do. Not that's going to help because Mina's uh, on her way out. Does everybody die at the end of this and just end up in the labyrinth at the end? Everyone dies, Danielle, and they end up in the labyrinth, and the next book is a post-apocalyptic story of survival in the labyrinths. I mean, first off, awesome, down right? for that. Yeah, yeah. let's get to the third book. That's basically <laughs> like the city of Ember, but in the labyrinth. <laughs> Which I am here for. <laughs> the city of Ember would be way cooler if it took place in the labyrinth. I mean, Pretty much everything is way cooler if you just put it in a labyrinth, Sam. <laughs> Schindler's List, better in a labyrinth. <laughs> I mean... Yes. <laughs> Ooh, okay, you went on that limb. <laughs> there are very few things that wouldn't be better in a labyrinth. More depressing, maybe, but okay. definitely better. All right, all right. Well, it's hard to gauge what better means. <laughs> More interesting to watch. You're going to love the ending of this book, Danielle. You're going to love it. <laughs> are they all in a labyrinth? Are they fighting in a labyrinth? <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. Okay. If it ends in a labyrinth. I'm here for it. Oh, I'll say I'll say that I, I'm glad I put up with the whole book if it ends in a labyrinth. Uh, you're gonna be disappointed. And not in an annoying way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we cut to Saul sitting on the steps of the Sphinx, unable to enter the door due to the time tide, so basically like repelling him from it. He begins contemplating the old Abraham question and his own offer of sacrifice. Again, he thinks he did it out of love for Rachel, not obedience. He then thinks and recites in his head two Yeats poems, which is fun because they're Yeats poems, not Keats poems, which is <laughs> always great. It's Keats's little cousin. Um, <laughs> junior Keats. No, Young Yeats, Keats. Entirely different poet, Danielle. <laughs> An entirely different, very real poet named Yeats. <laughs> young Keats. <laughs> nope. This is not like a young Sheldon. I'm sorry, Yeats, you're better than that. <laughs> I mean, he's a, apparently they're a really great poet. Uh, again, I don't know a whole lot about Yeats or Keats, and it was like very confused when I first what? read this like many years ago. And I'm like, wait, Yeats is a separate poet than Keats? <laughs> Why is Simmons doing this to people? <laughs> it is amazing. I don't know what Simmons is doing, but I love it. He is so like, I'm going in hard on poetry in my book, and I have left out so much poetry. And it's not like bad or anything. It's just like, you don't want to sit here and listen to me recite poetry. And then he could have picked any poet in the entire world to be a secondary backup poet, and he's like, I'm going for it. I'm doing yeats. To be fair, Danielle, if I had the choice when I was writing this book, I would do that. It's hilarious. It's the best choice. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I feel so bad for Saul that his entire life is just thinking about Abraham. And how, like, he has to sacrifice his own child and what that means. Yeah, like, it's so sad. His story's so sad. Saul has the most story, I should say. Just the most yeah, story. Yeah, he doesn't get, like, he doesn't get any good things. What did he do I mean, he gets the joy of raising life? his daughter twice, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> joy and the sorrow, Sam. Yeah, well, you it know, you can't have one without the other. Raising. Would you rather have a boring life filled with no ups and downs, or do you have one filled with a bunch of ups and downs, Danielle? I don't know. Well, you don't have a choice. Yours is the latter. <laughs> <laughs> so up and downy. <laughs> All right, get to the war room. They're watching Admiral Lee's task force attack the swarm, and it's not going well. <laughs> so Mapurgo was all, hey, uh, this is going badly because the force and the new Bushido code is not really prepared for this scale of war, which again, <laughs> duh. Mm -hmm. Apparently, they assumed that since they were tracking the Astra swarms, they would have at least 18 months of warning before the swarms could arrive should they turn towards the web. And so they're like, all right, we have 18 months, which would be plenty of time for us to spin up some, you know, more war economy and build some more ships and get prepared. But the whole surprise attack thing really, really threw them off. And it was really weird how their long range sensors didn't pick up on anything until the 
Technocore told them about it. Yeah, so do... Are they just taking the Technocore's word at it? Or are they... Like, do they see the Ouster ships? Do the Technocore's have ships that look like the Ouster ships? Like, how is this I mean, working? there are definitely ships destroying planets. <laughs> no, I believe that, happening. but like... I mean, aren't, don't the Ousters have specific kinds of ships? Not really. They're very warfare? like. I mean, they don't really. They're all very different. That's the whole point of the of the Ousters. They're very diverse. So they just they have a bunch of ships that looks like it could potentially be an Ouster. Yeah, I mean, they have no idea okay. what the Ouster ships sure, actually sure, sure. look like. So anyway, the general idea now is if they cut off the twenty five first and second wave threatened worlds, they're like, okay, we can just cut our losses at those twenty five worlds. You know, we'll have several years before they can get to the rest of the web, and we can shift to a wartime economy, build up our forces, and really like get in getting ready to, to fight them off. So it failed on the first wave, and now it's failing on the second wave? Well, the first wave, the ousters had like nine or whatever ships, nine swarms that were coming in that would be able to hit 25 planets before mm-hmm. they sort of ran out of room between them and the rest of the web. Mm-hmm. So they're like attacking this one area. So they're like, okay, we tried to protect the second wave worlds. That's not going so well. So clearly we don't have the forces necessary to like fend them off. So we should just... Go isolate ourselves worlds <laughs> well just basically there are no third wave worlds at this point because <laughs> there's nothing they're not they're out there aren't enough swarms to like get to the third wave worlds so, like mm-hmm. they can just say okay we're gonna strand those guys out there in space it'll take them years to go by hawking drive to get to us and we'll have time then to prepare that would work probably if it was the ousters yeah that's well that's the thing right <laughs> It would require just a massive sacrifice, being on billions of lives, 25 planets, including the seat of government on Tau Ceti Center. Not Tau Ceti Center. TC squared, baby. Woo-hoo. So sitting in the war room is another hologram, a new counselor the AIs have sent to help Albedo. He's basically been a representative saying, hey, I'm like the – think of him like the pharmaceutical rep, but instead of selling <laughs> drugs, he's selling the – uh, the the bomb, the, the death wand bomb. He's like, I got to talk this thing out. I'm going to tell you all about it. It's great. We should totally use this. Did he bring free coffee for everybody? He's so- bringing donuts. He's got coffee. <laughs> he's got everything. I'm sold. I'll sign the form. Let's go. <laughs> you're, you're that easy to wipe out humanity, Danielle. This is why you can't be in charge of anything. <laughs> I've done a lot for free coffee and donuts. <laughs> That's really, really sad, Danielle. <laughs> There's so many better things in life than any of those. I'm just kidding, Sam. Uh-huh. Jeez. Yeah, you sacrifice just- your own child for that, I bet. I've met a lot of reps. They're lovely human beings. (laughs) Well, here's another one. And he's been smarming around, talking up this death wand bomb. He's like, it's great. You can hide in the labyrinth. You'll be protected. And the bomb has a range of about three light years. We haven't really tested it because obviously we can't kill people. But with the simulations, they're spot on. So you can totally trust us. Don't do it. It's a death labyrinth. So you can definitely clear out an entire system of all the ousters just in one bomb, and maybe even two systems if they're close enough together, and all your your lovely Gemini citizens will be totally safe, nice and safe in the labyrinths. Aren't we lovely? We're here to help you. This helpful AI then suggests that, you know what? What if we, instead of just deploying like a dozen bombs and blowing up a bunch of plants, what if we gave a demonstration? What if we what if we attacked one ouster swarm with this bomb? We filmed it and we transmitted the results to all the other Alistair Fleet said, hey, guess what will happen to you if you don't back off? And Mina thinks of it like Hiroshima, basically. You know, mm-hmm. send a warning. Like, we're going to do one demonstration and this is going to happen to you. And he's like, you know, I have the perfect plan to demonstrate this on. Do you know where we should demonstrate this, Danielle? Hyperion. Hyperion. Because everything happens on Hyperion. Well, guess what's actually around Hyperion that isn't around any of the other planets? A shrike? Ousters. <laughs> So you're going to kill the ousters? Right. So the well, the plan is the AIs could kill the ousters, the real ousters, and humanity with one bomb as opposed to killing their own ships or fake killing their own ships. 
Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs, this is bad. It's a great plan. It's a really good plan on the AI It's a part. really good plan. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, hey, we'll take it to Hyperion. It's a labyrinth world. That's perfect. We'll get everyone into a labyrinth. We'll send them a message saying, you know, evacuate to the labyrinth. We'll deploy the bomb in the system, wipe out the ousters, and Hyperion's far enough away from the web that if things go a little wrong, it's fine. There's plenty of space between it. Like, if the bomb goes, like, four light years, it's not going to be a problem. Is this one bomb going to kill everybody? Is that the actual plan, or is it just... Maybe. Good? They don't know. Uh, well, I mean, the AI certainly aren't telling them anything. <laughs> right. And this AI is very smarmy and says, It has to be your decision, as it pains the core to take any human life, or through an action, allow human life to come to harm, which is a great perversion of the Asimov laws of robotics. <laughs> I'm going to admit the only thing that's keeping me going through this last part and this part is that there's a death labyrinth potentially involved. Danielle, you don't want to hear about what's going to happen to all of the pilgrims? I mean, and Saul? I genuinely really don't care about most of the pilgrims. <laughs> I like Saul. I hope he wins out in the end. I it's don't insane. care that much about Braun, I'll be honest. Um, you should. That mass team's already gone. It's not that I don't care about her as a plot or a character choice. I just don't care about her as a, like an existing thing. <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you, Danielle, or we'll get to it, why you're wrong in so many ways. It's great. <laughs> This gets insane. It's so good. No, I was not saying she's not important. I just, like, I have no emotional attachment to this woman. <laughs> to be fair, I have cut out almost all the character development to keep us focused on the plot. So that's, that's maybe fair. on me. <laughs> but I care about Saul. <laughs> well, how can you not care about Saul? His story is tragic. Like, it's built in. <laughs> Bronn's story isn't inherently tragic. You have to get her character through her dialogue and her that's actions. That's true. So, I mean. I care about Severin, sort of. Like, Severin? I'd be a little sad if he actually dies. No. Tuberculosis dies, is a hell of a thing. <laughs> but he doesn't, like, die, die. He needs to, like, fully die. I'd be a little sad about it. So, anyway, after this discussion, Minia finally decides to go along with the Hyperion test. And she's like, you know, get that thing ready. Let's go. Morpurgo is not on board, seeing it as inhumane, but Mina stands by her decision. Uh-oh. Mina, what are you doing? Cut to Hunt, watching Severin I thought she die. was kind of like... Sorry to cut off Severin's story. I thought she was kind of, like, on the fence about this whole thing. She thought maybe she they is, were, like, but being She is, like, she doesn't trust the core, but also... She doesn't see any alternative to stop the ousters, which she very much thinks are attacking them. Uh-huh. So, again, she doesn't really see many alternatives. A lot of politics in Agile is, like, on board with this. So she's, like, doesn't have a lot to push back with. She has no alternatives to, to offer. Got it. So we cut to Hunt watching Severin die. Poor Severin. Yes, poor Severin. Because it's not Severin, it's Severin. So I said, poor Severin. You're saying Severin, not Severin. Severin? 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 S-E-V-E-R-N, not S-E-V-R-E-N. Okay, I can't see the spelling, Sam. How am I supposed to know what you're saying? (laughs) I know, that's what I'm telling you. (laughs) Severin. Severin. Yeah, you go. (laughs) Poor Severin. (laughs) There you go, we got there. Took us a while. (laughs) We had a diversion we do not have time for. (laughs) During his last ravings, he manages to communicate to Hunt that, hey, the core is located in the Farcaster web. Just a tip for you there, buddy. Well, that was nice of him. He also tells Hunt that Uman and the others are trying to make him escape himself through godhood, and that in terms of becoming this messiah, quote, We all could have, Hunt. Humankind's folly and greatest pride. We accept our pain. We make way for our children. That earned us the right to become the god we dreamed of. What? Yeah, I don't know. Why does Hunt- he just say <laughs> things <laughs> it's so good and so the hunt's all like uh sure great if you can become this messiah god thing why don't you do that and then save our butts with your unlimited god power <laughs> i'm on hunt's side but severin says he can't because quote i'm not the one who comes but the one who comes before no wait is it the baby keats and then a little while later severin dies 
Poor Severn. Oh, so good. Uh, we're not done with him, though. <laughs> is Baby Kiss he floating around the datum plane or whatever? Oh, yes, he is. We'll get to that. Perfect. I mean, we have to assume that Baby Keats has some kind of importance. Eh. Back to Braun, trekking to the Shrike Palace. She thinks that she probably owes more to her daughter's life and to go back and be safe than she does to risk her life saving Merton. Oh, finally! What is this, like, hundreds of pages later and she's finally like, oh yeah, I have a baby, I forgot. But then she's like, nah, I'm still gonna go for it. She goes find Martin anyway. Man, she's like the worst mother. Oh, you're this is so. I love this part. Oh, well, not this part specifically, but the part that's coming up. She finally gets to the Shrike Palace. She goes inside, and the interior has become enormous, like kilometers long, bigger than it is any right to, bigger than the entire Time Tomb Valley. And it's filled with a dozen tiers of white stone on which countless bodies are laying, all human, all hooked up to umbilicals. It's basically the Matrix, Danielle. <laughs> I had a very strong Matrix vibe in my yeah. brain. Basically, this is a Matrix, and so all the people who are on the Tree of Pain are actually here. The Matrix, pain, Matrix before the Matrix. Do so? Are they really on the Tree of Pain? That's are a really good question, Danielle. At once? Um, I'm not going to spoil anything, but that is a question that isn't really answered. If they're like really there, if it's a simulator, <laughs> if it's something like halfway in between. But basically, they're there and not there, and they're here. What is going on? Why? <laughs> I love this book. <laughs> it's so great. This book makes me mad. Uh, one of my favorite things is coming up. Oh, I love it. At the very end, it has a hilarious part that delights me. <laughs> Made the whole book worth it for me. <laughs> better end in a labyrinth. Nope. It's better than that. Mm-hmm. The Shrike is also inside, but Braun steals herself and walks just sort of like past him. He just sort of like ignores her and starts searching the rose for Martin. She finds him a little way off from Sad King Billy. So they're like close to each other. So like their relative positions in this facility are also their relative positions on the Tree of Pain. Right. When they're yelling Keith's poetry at each other. Exactly. She realizes that she has no tool to cut the umbilical off of Martin. And she knows that if she leaves to get one, she won't ever be able to re-enter this place. That seems true. Not with your teeth. Better than that. She decides to freaking karate chop her way through the fluid-filled cables. I, that surely will work. <laughs> she just, Better so, than my teeth suggestion, which are sharper. She just starts smacking it with her hand because she has these detective-based martial arts trainings that she took. I'd like to assume it's not martial arts. It's just her slapping it like the <laughs> girl fights that you see on movies. And she's like, it's going to work. <laughs> no, she is putting her in all of her fairly substantial Lucian strength against this thing and karate chopping it like so hard that like her hand is breaking. Like she feels the bones breaking her hand and her wrist. Shenanigans. And as she does so, she hears the strike approaching her from down the hall, like slowly sauntering up the hallway towards her. He's like, get off my lawn. So, as she's smacking it, she hears the strike start to climb the stairs behind her, and she finally manages to chop through the cable. As she cuts through it, it, like, empties, like, this red fluid comes pouring out, and the whole thing sort of withers up and disconnects from Martin's head, and he wakes up and says, Hey, did you know the strike standing right behind you? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. (laughs) I left out some swear words from that sentence, because it's Martin, but you can guess where they go. Uh, she karate chops through the cable. It's so good. <laughs> we did not see that coming. <laughs> I do not think she could karate chop through that cable. Danielle, whatever you think, doesn't matter because she does it. Don't, don't <laughs> doubt her. 
Don't doubt the power of Bron Lamia. Yeah, impressive. Good job, Bron. Cut to Mina in her quarters checking her messages. One of them is from Admiral Lee, who says- Nobody cares about Mina. Go back to them karate chopping Martin out of a tomb. Well, I did that. He's done. They, she's <laughs> out. He's out. She's karate chopped him out. Except it, there's a strike behind them. It is not done, Sam. The scene oh. is still ongoing. We'll get to that. There's a whole other part of it. We got the karate chopping done, though. <laughs> Unless you karate chops your way through the strike. It's I mean, apparently she has magic arms. <laughs> <laughs> she has Lucy in strength and Yeah, commitment. has she tried? Has she tried to karate chop through this the, sh- question. the strike? No, I mean, Kassad tries guns, but no one's tried karate chopping the strike. That's a real good yeah. point. Actually, no, he has tried. He try, has tried hitting the strike very hard with his arm. And like Maybe Kassad's not as strong as Braun. Yeah, he did have the skin She's suit to help She's got baby him. Keats power. It's like a whole different brand of fight. <laughs> She's like a mech, right? Being driven around by baby <laughs> Keats inside of her. You don't know. <laughs> No. We're going to talk about Mina right now, Danielle. I had to, cut, I had to get through these cuts, so do you. Boy, do I not care. Mina's in her quarters. She's got a message from Avril Lee who says they managed to capture a few of the Alistairs from the uh, swarm, but they couldn't get any of them alive. They could only get dead ones. And then he shows her what happens when they try to dissect them. He starts to cut open the Shrike, or the, uh, pff, he starts to cut open the Alistair. Whole different plot. Wait, yeah, right? <laughs> back it up, back it up, back Shrike it up. on the brain. So he starts to cut open the Alistair, and immediately the corpse starts to like combust like burn with a bright white light and totally incinerate just the way cybrids do huh <gasps> mysterious and then the transmission abruptly cuts off as presumably admiral lee is killed no no not admiral lee admiral lee mm, boy lee <laughs> sorry that was a really hard word all of a sudden yeah that and seven <laughs> <laughs> I, to be fair, did not see Severin's name written down. That's fair. I mean, I've and only I've ever written it in the description. I've Severin no, for the entire time. You've seen it written many times. Because you read in every description I write for our episodes, you review them, okay. and I've written Severin in there several and I have times. Told, how many times have I told you while reading those that I'm surprised by the spelling of the character names? Yeah, that doesn't mean you haven't seen it, Danielle. It's there. You've seen but it. But I'm surprised every time. I wish you could be in my brain when I'm reading them. I'm just like surprised all over again. I mean, I can't be responsible for you not retaining information, Danielle, but I've offered it to you is my point. It's every two weeks, and it's like two paragraphs, Sam. I don't know what you want from me in life. <laughs> this. I want exactly this, Danielle. It's great. <laughs> I can only do so much and for a book I'm not even reading. Well, way to undermine the entire premise of our podcast, Danielle. <laughs> Severn, right. Keats, Braun, can't spell that either, Lamia. <laughs> Hetmastine. No idea. H-E-H-T? H-E-P-H-T? H-E-T. H-E-P-T? H-E-T. See, that's not how I'd spell anything het. in this book. That's not how you would spell het? H-E-T? No, I would totally put a P-H-T in there. That'd be heft. No, it wouldn't be because it's fantasy world, Sam. He spells words like how you like would not spell them in a fantasy book. It's not a fantasy book. It's sci-fi. And it's he's really used a lot same, of real world names. Construct like Mor- for- Morpurgo is a real name. Lamy is a real thing. Braun is like a real, real name, name of, of Keats' lover. <laughs> I'm fair. I'm very aware of that. I'm the one who researched Keats, unlike some of us on this podcast. And Severn is also a real person. It's like you're like, oh, he spells all these names real well. These are real people's names, Danny. How I don't you say tell them you. in your head? How you spell them in your head or say them in your head is different than how they're spelled on paper. It's not my fault, Sam. It's okay, very hard. but it's not the fantasy world problem. This is the real world problem because these are real <laughs> names. These are actual it doesn't human mean you beings. know how to. It doesn't mean that you know how to spell them any better. You've met people, right? Their names are hard to spell. Oh. 
I'm not saying people don't spell their names crazy. I'm just saying don't blame fantasy writing for him using the actual real world names and like spelling <laughs> them like real world names. Like, oh, how dare he spell them so well, weird? How am I spe- like, how many heads have you met? <laughs> <laughs> I would go H-E-D. It sounds like the obvious way to spell it. See, because you spell weirdly and I, I spell don't. Like <laughs> H for huh, E for eh, T for t. It's not yeah, that hard. Basically, it makes sense, yes. Sam, but it doesn't make sense as like a crazy sci-fi fantasy name. <laughs> You're overcomplicating. This is the problem. Then you're trying to like make this Klingon spelling in this book, which is not Klingon <laughs> spelling. It's not my fault. I'm not reading it. They're not sticking in my head. All oh right. my god! What happens? <laughs> I really would like to tell you, but we're here, stuck on this freaking spelling of het masting. <laughs> you're the one who brought it up. No, you're the one who brought up Severin. <laughs> you're the one who brought up Pet. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? I, I, I'm a big fan of his. <laughs> Him and Sek Harding. Love them both. Great names. <laughs> All right. After that message, she also gets a message from Theo Lane, who summarizes the whole Ouster tribunal noise. So she's now aware of the betrayal of the core and the fact that the Ousters are really not invading them. Uh-oh. Well, she'll be able to convince the other governor. What are they? Why can I never remember what they are? Senators? Yeah, and also the... Admirals? Generals. The generals and admirals, yeah. Yeah, okay. You know. I want to say captains, and that's not what they are. Oh, captain, my captain. All right. <laughs> we talked about that before. We did. Moving Brought on. Him back. <laughs> Where Purgo then shows up to protest just the death bond bond. He's like, this is a bad idea. It's immoral. I really am uncomfortable with this. And Mina's like, come with me for a second. And she takes him through her private forecaster to a planet that is supposedly bereft of the data sphere, so safe from the core's prying eyes. Sure it is. At least as safe as any planet can be. So she fills Morpurgo in on what she's learned, and he is shocked, but doesn't think that's enough evidence to convince the all thing or the other senators to turn on the core. Meaning is all, sure, great, but we don't have to convince everyone. We can still do something ourselves. We have three hours to think of something, and I'm going to go take a nap, and I think you should do, because I haven't slept in days. <laughs> and when I wake that's up... That's the solution to their problem. <laughs> I'm going to take a 30-minute nap, and when I wake up, we're going to have a plan. <laughs> Power nap the heck out of this. That's exactly it. It's so good. Power nap ourselves into a solution. <laughs> this is why I love Mina, because she is a bamf. She's the best. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that at work. I'm like, excuse me, I need 30 minutes because I can't function anymore. I'm going to feel better in 30 minutes and we're going to rock this day. I have to make a decision that's going to affect billions of lives. I need to <laughs> at least have a 30-minute nap before I make that decision. <laughs> Reasonable. I'd be like, yes, take that nap. If Pongo in the Starlight Barking <laughs> had taken a little nap before deciding for all the other animals, like whether or not they'd go with the dog star, I think he would have had a better, like, clearer head about things. I can't believe that was all or nothing. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, Wild. You would have realized how dumb that was if you gave him the opportunity to have a little nap on it, right? How come the ones that wanted to go couldn't go? Those poor puppies. We're, we can't get into the whole of the book, we have to finish <laughs> this book, but suffice to say, yes, I wish Pongo was more like me to Gladstone as a leader. <laughs> Said nobody ever except Sam. Put that on my tombstone. I love that quote. <laughs> First time ever that 101 Dalmatians and Hyperion have been compared. Maybe. I mean, it's a crazy one out there, but I really hope it is because I'd be honored. <laughs> uh, all right. So the, they go off to take a nap. So it's great. Back with the Alstra Tribunal. They inform the console that the device he stole from them to open the time tombs actually did nothing. It was all a ploy. They were just oh, testing no. him and knew when the tombs would open anyway. 
just messing with them. Basically, they were seeing if he could be used and predicted the way you predict his actions and sort of like, oh, if we give him this stimulus, he'll have this reaction the way that Gladstone had also been sort of using him to know that he would betray the web to bring Hyperion into the web. Right? He's a science experiment. So basically, the console is devastated to learn that every action he's ever taken has been like part of someone else's grand Machiavellian plan. Ah, uh, poor console. He is very, he's like, oh, what? My whole life has been meaningless. He is upset. I mean, wouldn't you be? Yeah, I would be. And it's great. It's really fun. <laughs> it's great. Great for you as a reader. Yeah, Terrible that's, that's what I'm talking about. For the console, it sucks. <laughs> but, you know, he's a book character. I'm okay with it. <laughs> So his sentence is not death, but they condemn him to live on in the chaotic times they predict are coming, to help reunite humanity, and since he helped the Shrike, he must see it caged again. How? A great question. (laughs) (laughs) The Ousters have their own prophets and are teaming up with the Templars to reseed the galaxy, bring life back to the planets, have humanity spread and evolve throughout the galaxies instead of destroying and stagnating. Like, you're taking over and invading, they're going to actually live in harmony with what they find out there in the universe. How can they guarantee that? Nothing's guaranteed yet. Now, that's the whole point. It's about adventure. It's about discovery. Because the Alshers observe that all the new ideas from the hegemony have come from the core. The Farcaster, the uh, Fatline, all those things have come from the core. And humanity has had no struggle in the hegemony. They're all taken care of. They have no struggle. They have no drive, no need to improve, no need to invent they have no desire to evolve or discover new things so they want to throw them outside of the yeah they they think that humans need struggle they need adversity in order to be creative and invent and grow isn't that exactly the plot of magic hill book Oh, the fool on the hill? Yeah, that one. <laughs> it's like, I had a real big black brain. No, I'm like, what is she talking? Oh, yeah, Danielle's brain. Got it. It's the exact plot is him bemoaning the fact that he's got to suffer for his art. Well, he has to be heartbroken for his art. He can't get laid for his art. That's a, it, this is a little bit broader. Sam. This is a little bit broader about how, like you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. You know, when you need, you get you figure things out, and if you have no needs, then why would you ever figure anything out? It is for what this book is getting. It. Yes, okay. They're just very similar concepts. Yeah, the fool in the hill was like, well, if I'm getting late, I'll never have the urge to write, which is slightly different, a slightly, <laughs> slightly more myopic view of that same concept. I would say. What a book, man! What a oh, book! Man, I, I bring you the best books. You don't appreciate them. <laughs> Only because I have to listen through like 16 episodes worth of them to get to the point. I'm so sorry the authors I choose happen to be complex and like crazily convoluted writers. (laughs) This is why I bring such things as the face on the milk carton. (laughs) (laughs) Incredibly straightforward comparatively, but way less fun to talk about. I don't know. I'm enjoying it. I did have fun with that. That's true. It's a different kind of fun. Let me put it that way. I just love how insane these get. All right. So the consul is not happy about being allowed to live. He is like, I really hope you would kill me because I'm sick of this. <laughs> but they send him back to his ship and he requests like, okay, if you're going to make me go back, can I at least go back with my friends to They're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. We're not going to stop you. What do we care? Cut to Paul Duray sleeping in the medical wing, recovering from his burns. Please, Pope Duray. He hasn't actually been consecrated yet. That's the right, I don't know, is that the right word? I don't know. He's just been told that he's been voted Pope. He You've hasn't- had two weeks to look that word up and you haven't done it. Danielle, you overestimated kid. I put my effort into it. I read like 30 seconds of Wikipedia. That was enough. <laughs> I'm ashamed, Sam. You should what be. What good is book retorts if you can't give us the correct word for poping? <laughs> it's definitely not poping. <laughs> Danielle, also, do you know how this book works yet? I care about concepts. Sure. You go research them. <laughs> I 
definitely wasn't going to look up how a pope became a pope. You were the one that was obsessed with what the word was. And then you didn't even bother to look it up. Yeah, I gave up. <laughs> and you can't prove it's not poping. You didn't look it up. <laughs> I think I can I can pretty easily prove it's not poping. Like, I don't have to know what the word is to know what it isn't, Danielle. <laughs> how life works i think i think i can make a pretty strong inference based on available data listeners <laughs> yes listeners prove to me that poping is the correct word for being cut, like ordained as pope please write in and tell sam that poping is the correct word for becoming i'm gonna write in and tell me but i'm not gonna believe it unless i hear it from oh popey frankie himself <laughs> you know wikipedia is a, a community sourced project if you want to change it yeah and then get banned poping. by the moderators pretty quick go for it <laughs> totally worth it don't listen to sam <laughs> uh, good luck with that anyway old soon to be pope duray is sleeping in the medical wing recovering from his burns he dreams of a man by a lake guess who it is king arthur it's keith severin of course it's severin <laughs> Is it not King Arthur? He's by a lake. That was a solid guess. I don't know where this story's going. <laughs> it's not going Arthurian, I'll tell you that much. Although that'd be hilarious. It's like, okay. It all right. feels like it would fit in, doesn't it? Kind of, just a little bit feel like You're it would right, fit in. to be fair, they did have the Merlin sickness that Rachel suffered. See? I don't feel like that's a far stretch. Alright, well, was it T. S. White who wrote that? Once the Future King or whatever it was? I'm not hundred percent sure on that. Apologies, readers. It's something like that. I always forget his name. The once and future king. <laughs> Looked this up before. T.H. White. I was close. You were very close. Partial credit. Yeah, all right. Half point. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Partial credit gets you those degrees. Anyway, he's sitting there. Keats is at the lake and he goes to talk to Keats. And the man tells DeRay, there will be one who comes after me. Neither Alpha or the Omega, but essential for us to find the way. And Duray's just, just like, uh, okay, just nods along, like, this crazy guy's <laughs> talking at me. There's so many characters in this book that just say things. They say the craziest things, Danielle. It's so good. Like, I cut out. I skipped all of Uman's, like, crazy Cohen, like, babbling. It's so good. Which I appreciate. Thank you for that. You should read the book just for that. Eh, okay. okay. <laughs> so Duray just nods along as Severn tells him that his job will be the same as his own to prepare Did the Severn way. Die? He's dead. And while Duray <laughs> won't live to see that person's teaching, his successor will. Now he has to quickly get back to Patchum immediately. If he doesn't leave now, he won't ever get there. You say it so casually. He's dead. But he's talking to the soon-to-be Pope. <laughs> I mean, his body's dead. His slow-time body, as Uman would say. Slow-time body. Yeah. I have a slow-time body, too. You have a very slow-time body, Danielle. Hang in there, slow-time body. Actually, like, your body is more like fast time towards decay. <laughs> Don't talk bad about it. It's trying its best. It's not untrue, Danielle. It's falling apart. <laughs> it is. It's like being held together by like fishing wire and prayers. <laughs> and duct tape. Don't forget the duct tape. I can forget the duct tape. It's holding my gallbladder in. Oh, no. Well, that's not going to be there for long, Danielle. <laughs> it's not. April, it's coming out. I learned, I learned that today. <laughs> Congratulations. We have a date. Yay. <laughs> well, this is Danielle's medical hour on Booking Glitch. <laughs> It's often Danielle's medical hour on Booker It's a big part of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Poor gallbladder. So DeRay wakes up. He gets out of the hospital bed and makes his way for the medical forecaster. He's like, I'm going to listen to that guy in my dream. I'm on board. Let's go. <laughs> Back with Leigh Hunt, he takes Severin's body out and finds that the horse and cart are waiting for him. 
He sets Severed inside and walks alongside the horse and cart as it trundles off. This poor guy. Yeah. He's just like, I don't even know what's going on right now. I've never seen anybody die. <laughs> he hasn't. He is not happy about this. He's even less happy when he notices that maybe like 15 meters back, the Shrike is following him like a funeral procession. That'd be terrible. You're like, this is how our fight was. This is scary. Hunt is just ignoring. like, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to walk. Hey, Mr. Shrike, I hear you grant wishes. <laughs> You're not a pilgrim. No dice. The horse leads him to a graveyard where a fresh grave is waiting. He buries Severin there. Does it say Keats Jr. on it? It has a blank headstone, actually. <laughs> and he buries Severin there, the Shrike standing by watching. The last thing he does is use a convenient pen laser to carve Severin's requested epitaph into the blank headstone. Severin was here with a Z? Yeah, that's exactly what he wants. He wants Severin was here, <laughs> boy! No. Yo, yo, yo! It's a lyre with four of the eight strings broken and the words, Here lies one whose name was written water. Written water? Writ in water. Three words. Writ in water. Okay. That's not a complicated sentence. <laughs> I, when you said lyre, at first I thought you meant L-I-A-R, and that was a confusing statement until you got to the strings. <laughs> Sorry, I mean the Greek instrument, the lyre. I got it. I got it. Like the constellation. <laughs> I got it. So written water. What does that mean, Sam? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that's like his name is not remembered. It's written water and like vanishes it's upon his death. It's flowing away. Yeah, it's gone. It's like impermanent. He will not be Poor remembered. Severin. Keats will blow. Well, I mean, that is Keats' epitaph, I think, actually. Except that Keats is remembered I know, apparently great. very strongly. <laughs> it does not work. Keats is There's very- an entire series about him. <laughs> Well, you know what? Maybe this book is the reason why we remember him now, Danielle. It might be. It's certainly going to be the reason I remember <laughs> Keats. Hunt then walks back to the city, leaving the Shrike staring at the grave. After some searching, he finds a Farcaster-like portal in the middle of the Colosseum. Who would have guessed it had been there? <laughs> but no matter how hard he tries, he can't enter the portal. It's solid to him. Hmm, mysterious. After a while, he gives up, but then suddenly a person emerges and Hunt shouts with surprise. Cut to Gladstone, half napping. Taking her cat nap. Taking a little nappy poo. She's like, I make some big decisions today, Can't Nina. Can't put on the empty Pull stomach. It together. Can't put on too tired. You know, got to be in the right frame of mind for making big choices, right? That makes sense. Drink some tea, eat some Chinese food, take a nap, and we'll get back to this in an hour. Half an hour, please. I don't have an hour. <laughs> 45 minutes. Let's split no, the difference. No, no, no. Half an hour. That's all you got. <laughs> She can't do all those things in half an hour, Sam. Sure she can. She's mean a Gladstone, Daniel. Don't underestimate her. <laughs> she can eat Chinese food while she sleeps. Yeah, she can do it in her sleep. She's only half sleeping anyway. It's perfect. The other half can be eating Chinese food. <laughs> Drinking tea. Like a dolphin. She only does half a brain at a time. I could probably sleep and eat. I mean, I, you'd probably choke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that just you. I think most people would probably choke. People choke in their sleep even when ability. they're not eating. Like This is, a, this is like sleep apnea. That's a problem. Knock on wood. All right. Suddenly, she bolts upright and demands Morpurgo and Admiral Singh be brought to her. She had me dream. She, she certainly <laughs> did. She leads them both to her private planet. Morpurgo and Gladstone each catch up Singh on what their suspicions of the core are. And then she drops the bomb that Severn came to her in a dream and told her where the core is. It's in the Farcaster web, guys! Oh my gosh, this is so surprising. I can't believe it. And then the book pulls the old, Gladstone then told them exactly what they were going to do. But we don't get to know. <laughs> books man <laughs> <laughs> whatever this plan is sing is not on board he's like this is crazy i'm not gonna be part of this he thinks they're going to destroy it's a the good plan it's gonna be so good it's a great plan it's such a good plan <laughs> i can feel it 
He thinks they're going to destroy the hegemony, to which he has a sworn duty. But Mina counters that, hey, uh, his duty is just like hers to humanity, and this is more important than just the hegemony. Yeah. Suck it. Singh insists that her plan will do millions, at least. And Mina's like, yeah, I'll be remembered as the greatest mass murderer in history. But people will adapt. They'll learn to farm until interstellar trade is established. It'll work. And she also is like, the alternative is worse. The core no longer needs us as people, needs the web. They'll keep a few million of us as slaves penned in the labyrinths as human computing units, basically. Mm -hmm. And the humans won't die off because the core has devised the cruciform parasite to keep humanity alive forever. Is that why there are so many cruciforms in the labyrinth? Yes! I told you they were making weird matrix bodies. Yes! I wasn't wrong. I didn't say you were wrong. I never said you were wrong. <laughs> they were making robots to keep them alive. That's well, exactly what I said. Good job, Danielle. Yeah, good job, Danielle. You found the obvious solution. <laughs> You know what? The obvious solution in Hyperion being correct is like a one in a million chance. <laughs> I should be applauded, lauded. I should just be like remarked upon about how amazing it was. That Maybe I even someone got wrote a book about correct. you, just like Hyperion was about Keats in the future. How Danielle <laughs> predicted one thing in the book. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I should get credit for that. I give you credit for that. But I also admit, you do shotgun approach it quite a lot, too. <laughs> If I guess enough things, eventually one of them has to be correct. Yeah, that doesn't mean that, like, you're somehow a genius. It means you, like, when you try to guess who someone is, you guess everyone's name. It doesn't mean you got it right. It's a low bar, though, so I can congratulate myself if I want to. Thank I'm very, you I'm very, very proud of you, Danielle. You've done, a, you've done a remarkable job summarizing this. And it probably doesn't hurt that I have been trimming the fat on a lot of this and clarifying things to make it more obvious what's going on. God, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, like, reading the book is a lot more confusing than me retelling it to you after I've already figured out what's going on. <laughs> Shockingly, somehow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's quite so good. So the idea is that the cruciforms can keep bringing the human computing units back to life. And even though their brain functions are degraded to like their simpletons after like so many resurrections, it doesn't matter to the core. They just want the raw brain power. They don't care like what the humans do with it. Right. This was also apparently revealed by Severn. So they're debating whether this is a good idea. And they're also talking about like, the bomb. Like, hey – this bomb, we only have the core's word that the bomb only has a three light year radius. It could be one bomb and all of humanity is gone. And they need us to get ding, to the- Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is, like, they all knew this. This is all something everyone else is already thinking. And so they can't just set off themselves because they need us to cooperate to get humans into the labyrinth so that there'll be some to survive to be their computing units. So that's why they need us to be a part of this plan, to, to create the human cattle, basically, for them. So... At least that's my summation. Okay, they go down into the labyrinth, but we already know that a bunch of them die in the labyrinth, correct? Well, I mean, again, I think that they will. I think that was more possibly metaphorical than it was literal. Okay. Also, there are a lot of labyrinths, so maybe the one on Hyperion will be full of dead bodies, but the ones in the other plants will be full of living people. Okay, so some of them could survive potentially in the labyrinth. Yeah, like, at least the plan theoretically is potentially for that to happen. The core wants to keep a portion, you know, several million humans at least alive as their computational power for their computational okay. power and. They need humans to cooperate because if they don't get in the labyrinth, the death one will kill them no matter what. So they need to at least get some of them down there to survive to kick off their plan. Got it. And a lot of these things were sent back in time from future Technocore. Like, I'm sure the Technocore themselves did not make the Cruciforms. Those were things that were sent back, like, with the Shrike from the future Technocore or whatever. Future Shrike. Yeah, basically. So... Singh, still not convinced by this, and he pulls his gun out on Mina's like, I can't let this happen. You know, you are a traitor, etc., etc. And then he's shot dead by Morpurgo. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
quick. <laughs> Bye, Sing. And Mina's all like, you know, I, I wanted to leave him here if he didn't. Like, I was going to maroon him here if he didn't agree to help us. I didn't want to kill him. And Morpurg was like, look, we could not have taken that chance. Like, there's a chance the core <laughs> would have gotten him back and ruined our plan. So we had to, like, take him out. This is the only way to do the work. This is too important. He's like, look, who cares, okay? <laughs> yeah, this is way more important than one man's life. I mean, like, doesn't care that much. He's just like, it's like, no, that's too bad. And then they move on. All right. Cut to Severn, who is dead. He did not enjoy that experience of dying. <laughs> it's okay, he's still alive. Well, kind of. His consciousness is now floating in the metasphere, formless, but he manages to sort of pull himself into a semblance of his human form through force of will. Does he meet up with Johnny Keats? No, he's dead. Johnny Keats is way dead. Like, really dead? Like, torn apart by Uman dead. dead like, dead? his consciousness in the data sphere was destroyed. Okay, I'm just being clear as to how dead Johnny Keats is. I could not be any clearer. There is no more Johnny Keats. There is <laughs> right. no way to be this any clearer like about this. This was like Johnny Keats' final passing, is what you're Unless talking. Johnny Keats' mind is somehow in the baby's mind, he is gone gone. Which is quite possible, Which is very let's possible. be honest. <laughs> I'm not rolling it out. <laughs> He's tempted to return to Hunt, trapped on Earth to, like, haunt him a little bit, just for fun. Ooh. I'm Severin Keats. Listen to my Keats poetry. You didn't like it the first time, but you're going to like it to the third. He likens himself more to like Marley's ghost, but it also feels a bit of bad for uh, Hunt having to watch him die. I had TB. Okay. He didn't call it TB. He called it consumption. That's true. That's what it was. That's what it was. Anyway, but the Shrike burns brightly in the datum plane there. So he's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And he moves on. So the Shrike's hanging out in the datum plane well, like, for he can see, He can see things in the datum plane. He can see things have consciousness that transcend mere human consciousness into like- Are they really making this into a TV show? For like a decade they've been doing it. Now, who knows if it actually <laughs> going to happen? <laughs> Miraculous, really. It, I mean, if they do, I mean, I wonder if it'll be like the Foundation TV show. It'll be very different than the book. Like, inspired by, but not at all like following the real plot. Yeah, hard to imagine. Still good, but not the same. Anyway, he says that he has chosen death to godhood, but he still has some chores left to do. He zooms through the core, which is a wash in chaos. A massive AI screams and dies in the distance, possibly Uman. So that's, that's no, fun. No, no. Oh, poor Uncle Keats. We knew him well. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, they will do we'll like miss a you weekend at Bernie's with Uncle Keats. <laughs> so the chaos serves Keats. Can uh, we please do that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was like, had to like sit in my brain for a second. <laughs> it really took you a while to get there, didn't it? I was trying to like physically imagine that in my brain. I'm like, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> if any book could do it, it'd be this book. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt with uh, Weekend at Unky Keats. <laughs> <laughs> so the chaos serves Severin well as he slips unnoticed to the government house, first to DeRay's dream, then to Gladstone, giving them the information as we've established. That'd be a great ghost. You? No, you'd be a terrible ghost. <laughs> You're like the kind of jerk ghost great. who would just mess with people for fun. Like, no one would like you. <laughs> I'd like me. Yeah, you, yeah, no one else would like you. <laughs> Sam. No, you have doesn't. to like yourself. I mean, you have to like yourself, but if you like yourself and you're a terrible person, like... I have a ghost, though. It doesn't matter. I can be a terrible person. I mean, a lot of, like, terrible people like themselves. It doesn't mean that they're doing the right thing by just liking themselves. Lots of people like me, too. You put up with me two hours every week. At least, Danielle. <laughs> with this recording, much longer. <laughs> we're so close, Sam. We are not. Oh, we're so far away. <laughs> <laughs> There's still, like, two more chapters left. 
Power through. We can do it. I'm trying, but we keep talking about. They all die. The end. Okay, everybody. It was so great to get through. I on. We're we know Danielle. It gets better than that. All right. So <laughs> he does all that, happens. and then he beelines for Hyperion. On the way, he sees the torch ship with the Death Wand bomb moving towards the portal. So, like, plans are in motion. Oh. Cut to Melio saying, "Mina Gladstone's coming through on a priority one squirt," and you're welcome for that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Quoted from the book. <laughs> It's a real good one. Mina <laughs> Gladstone's coming through on a priority one squirt. I love a good priority one squirt. If I had a dollar every time I had a priority one squirt, Danielle, I'd have a lot of dollars. <laughs> Not dirty at all. I'm talking squirt. about the grapefruit drink, Danielle. Obviously, the soda. Yeah. Mm, I do like a good squirt. <laughs> Nobody clipped that taken out of context. This is a PG-13 <laughs> podcast. I really want Twitter to take that quote from you. It doesn't put it out of context. Like that one little snippet and paste it over the whole, whole internet. I can make it our quote for the week if you'd like. Uh, <laughs> no, that's up to you. It's your quote. <laughs> anyway, you're welcome for that. And Theo was with him on the console ship, and the console's there too. And he got back and just started drinking heavily as soon as he returned. That's fair. Yeah, he is. But life is meaningless. He is, he is deep in the existential crisis. Well, we all get there sometime, console. So they're zooming back towards Hyperion. So apparently Mina is broadcasting an insane message. And it's insane not because of what she's saying. We haven't heard that yet. It's insane because she is broadcasting in real time to like literally everywhere in the universe at once. Like, she is using millions of electron volts, they say, of hundreds of millions of electron volts worth of energy to broadcast this. Okay, wait. So they can apparently broadcast a ma- message to, like, everything in the entire Like, across the entire forecaster network, as far as the forecaster can reach. Oh, but they couldn't message Mina earlier to let her know that the... What was it that she was showing? Severin, not Severin. Was, was it Severin? Yeah. No, Dre was trying to tell her earlier when they... I mean, they, like, they, they don't have. She has that because she has the forecaster. Like they don't have uh, the, not the forecaster, the the fat line transmitter. Like there wasn't a fat line transmitter. Like these things are as big as buildings usually. Man, they should really figure this out. They should have. Like the here's the thing: the Ousers devised a miniature fat line transmitter because they had been you know advancing technologically where the hegemony didn't. They just had the big ones. Like that's good enough. They're so much smarter than humans. They are humans. I know, but I meant like... The hegemony humans. Yeah, modern day humans versus the potential future humans. Do you mean like today humans, 2023 humans? No, I'm just talking about the hegemony versus the Ousters. Yeah, they're both in the same time period, Danielle, so it's not like modern... I know that, but it's more like like the hegemony is more like how kind of humans are right now, and the Ousters are like what they might be in the future. That is a fair representation. Okay. I understand. Okay, that... With this book, it's so confusing when you talk about like future humans and past humans and present humans. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to mess with time. <laughs> so you don't want to mess with time in this book, Danielle. <laughs> All right, we cut to the torch ship carrying the Death Wand bomb. It's crewed by General Morpurgo with three other people, one of whom is his son. He brought his most trusted people on this mission, and he's the one who's heading, even though Mina doesn't know that he's the one who took charge of this directly. So that's the bomb that's supposed to kill all the humans, Or right? at least a lot of them, or maybe destroy a bunch of the ousters so that the core can defeat right. the humans without the ousters. Like, the ousters are as much an enemy of the core as the hegemony is at this point. But Merpurgo is one of the ones that knew that it was yeah. fake, correct? Yeah, but he's clearly up to something. Because What's-Her-Face doesn't know. Mina doesn't know. But no, Mina doesn't know that he's on the ship, but this is part of the plan, and he decided to take it over personally, basically. Okay. With his son, who volunteered, and he was very proud of his son. He loves him very much. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, they're all going to die. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) That's so sad, Daniel. Oh, he loves his son. Who cares? (laughs) It's not that 
I just don't have any connection to Merpugo. I just only time I've heard about him is when you've t- talked about him in passing. I know, I know. And I've, again, there's so much. Like, you think my retellings <laughs> are long. Boy, this book is, is jam packed. I am sad that they're potentially all going to die. So they're listening to Mina's message on the radio, and Mina is announces that this is her final broadcast as CEO, that the core is lying and behind the invasion, and then her transmission is interrupted by the core, and so Morpurgo switches to Fatline, which I don't know why he wasn't on Fatline to begin with, but here we are. So the core interrupts and is like, don't listen to the woman behind the curtain. Basically, and then she's like, no, I'm going to broadcast on the Fatline and like punch through. And so Mina continues that... Humankind needs to end the Faustian bargain made with the core, and the location of the core is in the dark spaces of the Farcaster web. As such, she's authorized and ordered the four ships to all destroy every Farcaster singularity in the web in exactly ten seconds. So all the Farcasters are going to be gone? Whole far, the whole web. Like, destroy the web. Like, literally the web, which is the Farcaster network, is going bye-bye. That's how you get okay. at the core. That's her, that's her, like, strike at the core. Does that work? Ten seconds later, <laughs> the torch ship enters a singularity just as the more than 72 million Farcaster portals are exploded. So did Marpugo and everybody die? So millions die immediately, mid-transit, you know, or have their limbs lost as portals cut out as they're halfway through them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some of them just disappear entirely. They enter the portal and they enter it completely, but they get destroyed just before they exit it, so they're lost in between the liminal <laughs> spaces between the portals. That would suck. Yeah. Well, that's what <laughs> happened to the torch ship. It was timed so that the torch ship would be one of those things that got lost in the in-between spaces. The bomb would go off, not in our space, but in that web space, the in-between space where the Farcaster network is. Mm-hmm. What is the consequence of that? Nobody knows. The effect was never known is the quote we get. Isn't that where they lived? The ties that bind? I don't no, know. That's the where the void, void no, that the binds? void that binds is not in the web. The uh, the Farcaster network is like wormholes through the void which binds. Oh my god, Sam. It's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. <laughs> it's very <laughs> easy. Think of it like a sponge. The sponge is the void with binds and the holes are the Farcaster portals. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. How is that It's just clear? like you're saying words. <laughs> I could not be more clear, Danielle. You listeners, back me up on this. As clear as you <laughs> can be in this back book. Back me up on this. <laughs> this book is insane, but at least that part makes sense. I feel like 50% of our listeners are me going, what are you talking about? And the other 50% are like, yeah, Sam makes perfect sense. <laughs> That's why we have such great complimentary skills in this, Danielle. <laughs> Sponge holes. Perfect. That's all you have to remember. So millions die. <laughs> Millions more die stuck inside habitats that are only accessible by farcasters. So, like, rooms you can get into from a farcaster but have no other, like, actual doors or windows. (laughs) My God. Could you imagine (laughs) that you're stuck on that one planet with the bathroom? Like, that that happens, too. Like, houses, people sitting in the houses with their families are separated from each other as their portals between their their rooms Mm. wink out of existence. And so, like, oh. So sad. The bishop of the Shrike Church. He dies because he sequestered himself inside a mountain with the thousands of his acolytes to, like, wait out the end times in this mountain bunker. It's a bummer. But guess how they got into the mountain bunker, Danielle? Farcaster. Farcaster. Guess what's gone? The Farcaster. Yeah, they're dead. I'd like to assume one of them just sitting on a toilet in the middle of that lake. <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly. It's not a lake. It's a mare infinitus. It's a planet full of ocean. Literally okay, infinite mare. whatever. Infinite ocean. <laughs> Super don't care. So the book is going to go through and tell you what happens to every character ever mentioned in the book and what happens to them. So I'm going to tell you about a few of them right now, the little vignettes. Perfect. I'm excited. Do you remember Tyrena Wingreen Fife? I remember the name. I do not remember the character. 
She is the publisher for Martin's books. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. So she gets stuck in her 400 plus 4 office because there was a forecast at the top. And I'd feel bad for her, but wasn't she kind of a little bit terrible? Yeah, she was just like, fine. She wasn't evil, but she wasn't great. And so like the rescue crews come up with an EMB like, okay, we're going to pop the window open and then like get you out of there. But she apparently she didn't listen well enough for the instructions. When they pop the window open, the decompression like shoots her out. She like falls to her death. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Bye, Miss Fief. Tyrena Windgreen Fief. Sad day. Sad day for her. Families are torn apart as parents who left for work in the morning and forecasted to another planet for work cannot get home to their families or children who were sent- That is unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. Or children who were sent to school or the babysitter's house on some other planet are also now stuck there and will never be able to get back to their- Well, they can get back by Hawking Drive, but it'll take, you know, years and years of time yet, so they'll be grown up by the time they reconnect. Right. That's all very sad. There's a lot happening. Like, there's a lot going on. This is 700 years, this technology has been so ingrained that people literally built their houses around it and it's suddenly gone. It is a huge disruption. Wow. War sucks. I don't know if this is war or so much uh, like the weird consequences of our technological reliance on the AIs. (laughs) It's part of the war. Sure. There were riots on Lucis, which tore itself apart. Uh, But Maui Covenant, the indigenous population, rose up and took the planet back. Yeah, serious rebellion. Forcing the tourists to work to tear down the oil derricks that dotted the planet. How excited is the consul right now? Uh, He he is not aware of what's happening on on, on (laughs) Maui Covenant. He's got other problems. Yeah, he's lost in his own mind. Um, Patchum, DeRay made it back safely and was titled Pope Tellard the First. All hail Pope Dray. Mm, that's not his name, but sure. <laughs> his first order was to repair ships to send missionaries out towards the isolated worlds, but not as proselytizers, but as searchers. Whatever that's that nice. means. <laughs> Searching for the one who teaches that Keith Severin told him about. So the empathy thing? Well, whoever the new Messiah is, like the new incarnation of it, yeah. Are we sure it's not just baby Keats? Well, whoever it is, they don't know who it is. <laughs> so the ouster invasion waves all just stop, completely dead in space, because the core has been basically destroyed, and the, and the techno core is like now just the fringes what's left that live out in the dregs of the metasphere. Mm-hmm. Do they really not think any that they would give up the... Farcasters, yeah. I mean, they thought that like they would not have if Mina hadn't like secretly done this and put people in place to do it for her, like Morpurgo and other dedicated people. If they'd not figured this out in the way they did, like the Farcasters, essential to them as like electricity is to us, right? I thought the Technocore was like in everybody's head. Well, no, people are connected to the Technocore through their implants, but if you don't have an implant, you're not necessarily directly connected to them. But how did they not find out by some of the people who are because those people who don't trust the core don't have implants? Like, why if you're like, so oh, did. I don't like trust Mina the core. Doesn't no. Have an, no, she doesn't. Mina doesn't have an implant? No, like, she has a catalog. Okay. Which I just kind of like... assumed everybody had one, but no, no, apparently no, no, no. not. No. There, I mean, remember, there are cyber pukes, too. Like, you, there are different levels of being integrated into the into the datum plane. Right, but I kind of assumed all the main characters maybe were connected somehow. No, a lot of them don't have implants. Okay, that's fine. I believe it. Go ahead. On God's Grove, still burning, scores of tree ships rise up to journey out to join their ouster brethren in tree reseeding ships! the galaxy. So, yeah, they survived. Templars still around. Reseeding the galaxy. Yeah, and it sounds kind of <laughs> gross, but here we are. <laughs> More oaks for all. At least they're not fat line squirting into the galaxy. <laughs> Maples for Jesus. Not Jesus. <laughs> Muir. Maples for Muir. There you go. Like John Muir. Yeah, I think exactly. That's what it's named for. <laughs> 
Back in Government House, a mob was clamoring outside the building's shields, demanding Mina, because like, hey, you just screwed everything. We are mad at you. We need someone to blame. Except that she saved the day. You know, they, don't, they don't see it that way. Mina forces the text to drop the shields briefly so she can go out to face the crowd, which promptly swarms her and beats her to death. Aw, that was so sad. Bye, Mina. Yeah, she basically did a little martyrdom there. That's okay. I mean, she did it for a good cause and she knew she, what she was getting into, so it's okay. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, I wish our politicians were as, like, thinking of the big picture as much Not as Mina was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, she's like, I know I'm probably going to be blamed as, like, the greatest murderer in history and I'm going to be reviled, but I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, good job, Mina. I'm good glad job, she wasn't Mina. secretly evil, or at least as far as we know. Yeah, like, best politician in the world universe. Absolutely. Uh, back on the console ship, Thea was monitoring the chaos as hundreds of fat line swords come in from around everywhere, just describing, like, going on, like, people are just saying, like, this is chaos, this is chaos, this is going on. So he's, like, keeping track of all of this as best he can. And the console's, like, musing that, you know, hey... You know, humanity will probably rebuild, and while the core likely isn't destroyed, it's cut off at least, sealed off, away from us for now. But then suddenly, all the Fatline transmissions cease, cut off by disturbance in the Fatline medium. Uh-oh, not the Fatline medium. Which the ship insists is impossible. But it's happening. And this is one of my favorite parts. A new transmission comes through. It says, There will be no further misuse of this channel. You are disturbing others who are using it to serious purpose. Access will be restored when you understand what it is for. Goodbye. And then the fat line just simply ceases to exist. Like, it no longer works. They're done. <laughs> it's so good. Who was, who was running it? No one was running it. That voice was like, hey, you're in my territory. I'm sick of hearing this stuff. I'm cutting you off. Wild. The void that binds or like some proto UI is like, I'm sick of people putting all the, like, they talk about like writing graffiti on God's toe or something like that. And he's like, oh, I'm sick of this. And like, finally gets rid of the ants that are bothering it. It's um hilarious. <laughs> Just like, no more fat line for you. Bye-bye. So they have no way to communicate anymore? Not through long distances instantly, no. Now it's back down to old, slow communication and hawking drive only. Oh my They've gosh. They've effectively severed the web and isolated various pockets of humanity. They're back on dial-up. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? That'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Severin is zooming around the datasphere towards Hyperion, watching the megasphere swallow itself in chaos, though the metasphere still remains. Severin heads towards the time tombs, determined to finally actually do something about what's going on with those guys. Severin, man, he's just like chilling. He's like Ghost Rider right now. <laughs> Ghost Rider? <laughs> You'd never watch Ghost Rider? I know what you're talking about. The show where the ball of light helps children solve banal mysteries. This is exactly what he's doing, Zam. No, he's going to get directly involved in this plan. He's like, I'm trying to be the voice. I want you to get involved physically. Which Ghost, Ghost Rider, Rider totally does. Nah. Yeah, in its own way. Okay. Severance Ghost Rider, you can't prove it otherwise. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm the one who has to prove to you. That's not how this works, Danielle. You have the burden of proof. I'm pretty sure that's not true. I'm pretty sure it absolutely is true, so good luck. I Why would I thesis. have burden of proof? Because you were making the assertion. I'm not the one making nope. the assertion. No, nope. you've got to prove to me that Severin isn't Ghost Rider. This is why you're a terrible person, Danielle, because you're just <laughs> like, say nonsense. That doesn't matter. Because I'm on Ghost Rider's side. No, because uh... you're, the kind of person, you're, like, like, you're like the people who argue in bad faith on the internet. Like, no, you can't be right because I'm right. <laughs> nah, 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 done. <laughs> I'm better than that. No, you're you. not. You literally just made that exact <laughs> argument by saying, no, you have to prove it. I don't have to prove anything to you. But I didn't do it on the internet, so it's fine. Uh, people must think we hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's close, you guys. It's close. Oh. We walk the line. <laughs> no, that's that's uh, Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> All right, so back to the story here, because we have to get through this sometime in the next seven hours. We're so close. We're not. For real this time. <laughs> Are we not a chapter out? Are we a chapter out by now? Uh... <laughs> 
You said two chapters last time. That was like half an hour ago. I may have omitted the epilogue from that <laughs> estimation. You are killing us. <laughs> Me. <it>. I've been <laughs> trying. I was All like right. panicking. Catline squirts. No more. I was panicking while reading this. Like, oh my gosh, it's not over yet. I've got so- <laughs> this is gonna be such a long episode. Next. Fatline squirts. So we cut back to Saul waiting at the Sphinx, still contemplating the Abraham sacrifice. He concludes that- Oh my god, that's all he does. What else has he got to do? He's sitting there waiting for Rachel and contemplating how his life is basically that. He could, like, think of other things. Remember the good times with his wife? Nope. that vacation they took? Nope. Huh, I wonder what the lifeline looks like at my palm. Nope. <laughs> He's a scholar, Daniel. He likes to wrestle with big questions. How many- Sticks? Can I throw at that rock? That's not that's a big question. It. <laughs> so he concludes that it wasn't God testing Abraham for obedience, but a test of both of them. Quote: Abraham came not to sacrifice, but to know once and for all whether this God was a God to be trusted and obeyed. No other test would do. So Abraham was basically testing whether God would actually make him go through with the sacrifice. That's a big test to be wrong on. Well, he was like the only way to know for sure if this is a trustworthy God is like put it to the ultimate test. That's a big thing to trust Rachel with. <laughs> so Saul realizes the machine god trying to flush out the empathy part with pain from the tree of thorns was useless. Empathy needed love. Something the machine UI did not understand. Love was the void which binds the universe. Like it is the fabric of the universe is love. And it's all, all you love. need is love. All you need is love. No, I, well, to get the empathy <laughs> part out of there, you still need the intellect and the empathy, but yeah, basically. Mostly love. To the current hegemony, which sought to control and understand everything like a mechanical system in partnership with the core, left no room for love, so which is why it was stagnating. Mm-hmm. So he's like, it's all about love. I'm going to you know, express my love for Rachel. It was all about expressing my love for Rachel. So he goes up to the door of the Sphinx, straining against the time tides, waiting for his daughter, not even turning around as he notices the ship, a ship coming to land in the valley. Yeah. Severn finds himself able to travel without the data sphere directly through the void which binds. He sees the Shrike carrying baby Rachel with the Sphinx. Every step the Shrike takes moves it hours into the future. The Shrike burns bright in the metasphere, second only to the one who will be, which Severn is avoiding at the moment, but also burns brightly nearby. Okay, so Shrike and baby Keats are inside of the metasphere burning bright. And Shrike is holding baby Rachel and taking her through the Sphinx towards a portal. Okay. Severn which wants portal? To... Wait, which portal? Uh, just a portal. Some portal in the back a of the portal. Sphinx. Some portal. Yeah. To where? To what end? Portal. Who knows? Okay. The butt of the Sphinx. Yeah, the butt of the Sphinx, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up, Danielle. Come on. Come on. Get your last wave. We're almost there. But don't don't crap out on me now. <laughs> I'm totally with you. The butt of the Sphinx. Come on. You're like leaning on your face going like... Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I totally am leaning on my face. I know. I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. It's really long. <laughs> I know, and I'm like way past my bedtime. I'm trying here. You gotta work with me. This is a team effort. I'm pro you. You can do it, Sam. I have faith in and you. I believe in you too. Let's do this. All right. Seven wants to save Rachel, but has no physical form. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> really? He's Ghost Rider. It'll be fine. Where is his group of kids? He, has a, he doesn't have a group of kids because he's not Ghost Rider. In fact, he has something better than a group of children. <laughs> he has an idea. He goes to the Mobius Cube, still sitting there out in front of the Sphinx, the other luggage, and he interacts with the energy fields around it enough to release the Erg. He communicates telepathically with the Erg enough to allow it to use its containment fields to give him a physical form. Like, it shapes his consciousness with its physical energy form. I don't know. I thought the Erg only connected with Het. Well, it was connected with Het, but only the Templars knew how to psychically link with them. But I guess Keats, as a being of pure consciousness, has figured it out. I just eye-rolled so hard, you just didn't see it. Look, (laughs) I didn't make him a being of pure consciousness. Dan Simmons did. (laughs) 
right, all right. He has some kind of physical form now. Yeah, a very limited physical form. He rushes in to the Sphinx, and he snatches Rachel from the arm of the Shrike, who is, like, about to enter the portal, and he manages to pull Rachel away, and the Shrike is, like, trying to go after him, but it's being pulled back, like, every... It took, like, an extra step, and it's not, like, hours in the future away from him. It's, like, being pulled through the portal. It's like, well, I can't get to you now. Uh-oh. So... He escapes the Shrike, basically, with right, Rachel. with Rachel. And what, did we figure out yet why the Shrike needs Rachel? No, we don't know. Did we ever find out? Maybe. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he starts walking, tries to walk back with Rachel, but he finds that his form is not enough to pull her against the, the pull of the time tides that pulled the Shrike away. He can only sort of stay still. So he's like, all right, I'm going to stand here and wait, and hopefully someone comes along to help me. <laughs> Just chillin'. It'll be great. Surely somebody will come. We cut back to the crystal monolith. Braun turns around to see the Shrike hovering in midair, reaching for them, like arms outstretched. Oh yeah, I forgot. Braun was there waiting for the Shrike. It's Hover Shrike. It's Hover D-Day Shrike, Daniel. <laughs> Hover D-Day Shrike. And Martin's like, oh no, Hover D-Day Shrike is right behind you. Pretty <laughs> much. He's like- With his sick beats and kittens. He's gonna scratch you with the cat claws. <laughs> with his sick beats. On his record player. Yeah, scratch that record. That's right. That's what he uses the claws for, to scratch records. <laughs> Is that a record scratch, Daniel? Yeah. <laughs> He's not like an asthmatic mouse. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We've already established my Foley work is only like three things. <laughs> <laughs> we really want to expand your, your Foley repertoire and your beatboxing skills. because you only got boots and cats. part three of Iberion. Danielle, we really, what happened to Boots and Cats? What are you going to do more than Boots and Cats? You're going to do something else. And you said you're going to come back with more than just that for your beatboxing. Okay, well, you know how you didn't look up anything that you should have looked up about popes? Yes, that, that whole thing I promised <laughs> I would never do. I never promised I would do that. <laughs> I, too, never looked up anything more than Boots and Cats. Okay, great. Well, I'm glad we're there. Anyway, the point is, Hoverstrike is really has it in for Braun and Martin. He's like, you're not getting away from me, you meddling kids. <laughs> this might be why your mom thinks we're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'll make a Scooby-Doo reference anytime I can. <laughs> so Martin and Braun, like, bicker a little bit, like, what do you think we should do? And Braun's like, yeah, I don't know, do you have any ideas? And suddenly, Monita appears as, like, trust, and then disappears, runs off. <laughs> love her. This is so good. She runs and just like, trust! And then bounces. It's great. <laughs> and Braun's like, oh, okay, crazy. Lady. I guess we need to trust. Yeah, we need to trust. Like, she told me to trust. I got no other ideas. <laughs> it's so good. I like to imagine Braun's like, saying their hover strike is like menacing. It's like this lady just pops up from like below and goes, yo, Braun, trust! And then bounces out. <laughs> it's totally incongruous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he doesn't have any better ideas. I definitely would go with it. Yeah, she does. So Braun braces herself and then steps out into midair, but finds it's solid enough to support her. She's also now Ooh, Hover Braun. It's like that scene out of the Indiana Jones movie. Yes, except she's actually floating. Amazing! <laughs> it's not a trick. She's just floating. It's great. Very cool. So she walks on air towards the Shrike, lays her hand flat on the Shrike's chest, feeling a rush of warmth and energy come from her, out of her, through her. The Shrike freezes in place, like it's suspended in amber from the energy, and Braun pushes again. The Shrike, frozen in place, becomes brittle and turns clear, becomes glass. In its chest, fun. where the heart should be, fluttered what looked like a large black moth, beating sooty wings against the glass. She push What is even happening yeah, right now? Yeah, yeah. She pushes the strike again, and it falls and shatters on the floor. No. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm so against this. What is going on? I told you. The ending's insane. You would hate it. It's crazy. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Like, Simmons is like, I'm pulling out all the stops. All the crazy is happening. It's all going down. <laughs> what does this even mean metaphorically? Is it a metaphor? I think she just literally turned the strike to glass. <laughs> she literally turned the strike to glass. And shattered it on the floor. It's great. I needed to be a metaphor, otherwise I'm just mad. <laughs> Danielle, if you want to write a like book report on the metaphors of a period, I would love to read it. No, oh, I don't understand them. <laughs> They're too far above my brain. <laughs> we need like a we need like a whole master's level class just on Hyperion to understand this book. I would consider taking that. Uh, I would love that. It'd be great. <laughs> So as Bronn sort of walks back to Martin, her confidence fails her at the last moment, and she suddenly falls the last meter and sprains her ankle. (laughs) (laughs) She killed him with baby Keats. So uh, she hoists up Martin into a fireman's carrying, lugs him out of the palace, just in time to see the console's ship come in for a landing. I'm really disappointed that she didn't do, like, Ode to a Grecian Urn while she was trying to kill the Strike. There may have been some other Keats poetry in there that we'll get to, and previously that. I've skipped a lot of Keats poetry in this book, Danielle, as you can imagine. <laughs> There's no point in killing the Shrike if you're not saying Keats poetry while you're doing Would it. Would you like, leave like a pithy one-liner of, you're the Grecian Urn now, Shrike? <laughs> Suck it, Grecian Urn. <laughs> you shat like a Grecian Urn, Shrike. You're that fragile. No only written to you. We'll work on it. Uh, our, our, our Keats-based smack talk is not very good. <laughs> We're shopping and still... <laughs> <laughs> we need to read up on some more Keats poetry. I didn't know any of a Keats poet besides Hyperion and O2 Grecian. There's got to be a third one out there. Hyperion 2. <laughs> yes. Strike me the blue. <laughs> all right. So the consul Emilio and Theo come out to meet them, and they all turn to see Saul silhouetted against the glowing door of the Sphinx as a figure emerges. A young woman comes out, carrying baby Rachel. Saul recognizes his daughter, adult Rachel, holding baby Rachel. It's two Rachels no. for the price of one. Double Rachel. <laughs> double your fun. It's a BOGO. Oh, no. Why are there so many BOGOs in this? It's a BOGOR, Danielle. <laughs> Buy one, get one, Rachel. <laughs> That's not trippy at all. BOGOR. Uh, he rushes to her and they embrace. Rachel explains how baby Rachel is now aging normally again. So, yay. And that she, adult Rachel, cannot stay very long. She's like, I'm just here to drop off baby Rachel. Gotta go. Peace out, time suckers. Oh, oh my gosh. This explanation's amazing. The others rush over, and Bron recognizes her not as Rachel, but of course as Monita Moneta. I told you, Rachel. Mo- yeah. Why didn't I say that? I, I didn't say you were wrong. I just said, it's like, your only reason was because there's like two women in this book. And there are more than two women in this book. Are there? I mean, you're not wrong. They seemed obviously connected somehow. You were right before the wrong reasoning. Like, that's all I'm going to say. Well, they were, like, involved in time. I had more reasons than that. It was just the most easy reason to come up with in the moment. (laughs) So Rachel says she has only a minute or two and much to tell them. She will stay with Saul, but only one of them can stay, and the baby needs her way more than the adult Rachel needs him. So, you know. So Rachel and Kassad were, like, a thing. Yeah, they were a big thing. And guess who told Saul all about his sexy times with his daughter? Aw, poor what's-his-face. Kassad? No, I was thinking of her boyfriend from when she was not Monita Moneta. Oh, he's here. He's there. We'll get to him. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) 
So she tells them of the future and how she was chosen to be raised in that future where the final battle raged and how she saw Kassad die but hasn't met him yet because she's traveling back in time and that she was chosen to travel back to keep the Shrike in check, which good job there, I guess. She really did a bang up job keeping that Shrike in check. Well, she got Bronn to turn him into glass. Did she? I don't know. She was somehow, I don't know. She didn't yell trust. <laughs> I mean, it was a big component of the story. And but, and, and Rachel was chosen because she's the only one prepared because she had already sort of aged backwards, which is, I guess, the same as traveling back in time with the Shrike. I don't know. But the Merlin sickness is what made her ready to be the Shrike's companion, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Why I'll not? I'm in. In for a penny, in for a pen. Right. At this point, Danielle, nothing, nothing <laughs> matters. It all gets all in. I give it up. I don't care. <laughs> She then tells Saul that he can take baby Rachel to the future through the Sphinx portal and raise her there a third time to prepare her for this journey. He's like, man, no, thank you. I am so tired of children. No, he's like, I am on board. What else does a parent live for than to raise their children? <laughs> I think we should speak to more parents about that first. Right. He's, he's done it once, raised her forwards <laughs> once, backwards once, lost his wife, then has to raise her forward again. He's probably like, man, I just want her to like live her own life and I want to live mine. I don't want to be 90 years old and raising my child. Well, this, this is going to happen. But luckily, there'll be a bunch of other like human like people, wonderful people in the future to help raise her with him. So he won't be alone. That's good, I guess. She also briefly checks in with Amelia. It's like, hey, so Amelia, you got a wife and kids? Like, yeah. Like, cool. And then give a little kiss on the cheek. He says, good for you. And that's it. <laughs> Thanks for, like, devoting your entire life to me and never ceasing to love me. And also, like, abandoning, like, your wife and children who yeah, you cannot get back to. Yeah, like, breaking yeah. up with your wife and child. Saul asks her if there will ever be two Rachels again, like, if they could ever have this kind of meeting again. She says, quote, no, I go the other way now. You can't imagine the difficulty I had with the Paradox Board to get this one meeting approved. <laughs> <laughs> again, it's fun, Danielle. There's a Paradox Board. <laughs> <laughs> There is. Why not? Why not? Well, what's it doing? Because I am so confused about everything in this book. It clearly <laughs> it needs to chill in this there. Game. It's like it just makes some decisions randomly. It's like rubber stamping paradox or whatever. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> oh. Then she steps back through the portal and vanishes. An hour later, Saul's all packed up and ready to go to the future. He says goodbye to Braun and her unborn baby girl, and to Martin and the others. Then says, "So long, everyone. By God, it was all worth it, wasn't it?" And then goes through the portal and's gone. <laughs> So, uh, what's her face? Braun has a baby girl Keats. Well, whatever is inside of her, it's a girl, so. It's a baby Keats. Sure. Feats. Female Keats. <laughs> it's Feats. Feats. <laughs> the others wait around a bit and then start heading back to the ship, but then Theo pulls out Hoyt's balalaika, which was still in the luggage. The console picks it up, strums a few strings, and starts playing the tune, and they walk together back to the ship, singing... Guess what, Danielle? We're off to see the wizard. No, somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it ends. <laughs> Why does this book exist? <laughs> well, psych Danielle, there's an epilogue. Would you get ready for the epilogue? Ready for the epilogue? Here comes the no, epilogue. I am not ready for the epilogue. <laughs> well, tough, because it's, it's here whether you like it or not. I mean, I could just end it on them singing somewhere over the rainbow, but this is better. Okay, prove it. Well, I don't know if it's better, but it's less funny. I mean, I would have loved it if it just ended with them singing somewhere over the rainbow just to annoy you. <laughs> That's what Dan Simmons wrote this book for, just to annoy future Daniel. Apparently, it's working very well. He's a shrike. <laughs> He's traveling back in time to annoy Daniel. 
This whole book is really just about me. Okay, five months later, things have calmed down on Hyperion. The Alistairs work with Theo to set up a government and start rebuilding the capital. Keats was unofficially renamed from Keats to Jacktown. Braun has been staying at Cicero's during the Jacktown? months. Jacktown? Why? Whoa, whoa, why? Well, there was a part of Keats that was called Jacktown, which is like the old part of the town, like the old, where all the old people, old, old indigenous lived. And so they wanted to like reestablish Jacktown as like a... Why was it called Jacktown? Do I don't know? know, Danielle. Probably some reference we don't understand. Because John Keats is called Jack. I, I don't know. <laughs> Probably Jack Keats. All right, carry on. So Braun had stayed at Cicero's during the months helping Stan Lewinsky rebuild the bar. Remember him? Everyone comes back, Danielle. Everyone comes back. <laughs> yeah, sure. Totally remember him. Does the console play piano again? Yes. Later. Yay! <laughs> I mean, kind of. What? You can't tease that. Is there a labyrinth? <laughs> <laughs> so, Does he play uh, piano in the labyrinth? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I found Danielle's kink. <laughs> Just in this book. So Braun is leaving to go see the console off, and Stan gives her a present. Guess what the present he gives her is, Danielle? A locket with Keats's picture in it. So close. It's a hand-bound <laughs> collection of Keats poems. It was really close, actually. Yeah, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is Keats, and not all Keats. Keats all the way down. She gets into an airship, which takes her out towards the time tombs, and past a mountain where the face of Sad King Billy had been carved into, and to which Mina's face is being added by the guy who owns the mountain, despite everyone's protests. So, mm, that's funny. But does... Did anybody else get rescued besides Martin from the Cave of Wonders? We'll get to that. <laughs> also, I want to point out, of all the seven pilgrims who went to the pilgrimage, only three kind of died, right? Uh, uh, yes, it's impressive. Yeah, you're right. We expect that all of them died. I kept nasty. <laughs> dead. Absolutely dead. And like really dead, really fast. <laughs> yeah, he was dead. He was gone. No bringing him back. None of that shenanigans. Father Hoyt, kind of dead, came back as Duray. But we'll put him in the half category because he'll be back later, I'm sure. <laughs> like how useless the tree ship was. Right. Absolutely. No point to that. <laughs> <laughs> no point at all. It was just like some weird story you really wanted to add to the, to the plot. Yeah. Kassad died too, right? That's true. Uh, and that's about it. Everyone else is totally fine. <laughs> Good job. Good job, the rest of the crew. So much for the whole, like, everyone dies but one who gets their wish granted. Well, the only person that seemed to really get his wish granted was Dre. Yeah. Not even Hoyt. Not even one of the people who went on the trip originally. Yeah. Bummer. Anyway, as they're flying over the river, she spots a huge barge being pulled by mantis on the river. Possibly the Benaries. Yay, mantis and the Benaries. Mantis, mantis and like the Benaries. Mantis and the Benaries. I'll have the mantis and the Benaries, please. It's like the rocky road. <laughs> Benaries is my favorite part of the whole thing. That's really sad. If that's the one thing you love about this whole book is Benaries. on the Benaries. <laughs> that sounds like an ice cream flavor. <laughs> that is. The airship finally touches down near the City of Poet, which Martin has been helping rebuild and repopulate, and now has the spaceport. Yay! She's met by the Consul and Martin. They take her to a party that evening, which is to send off not just the Consul, but lots of people are leaving. Most of the people from the web, the, the, the force personnel who are stranded there are heading back to the web to get to their families, and a good chunk of the Ousters are going with them too, to sort of reunite with the other remnants of the web, basically. Aw, face living in harmony. Yeah. Well, I should also mention that I, I skipped over a lot of the stuff, but there a lot of planets did not have such a peaceful transition as Hyperion did. <laughs> After the party, the three of them with Theo return to the console ship where he plays them some piano, so there you go. Yay! Theo is soon going to be elected the mayor of Jacktown, and they reminisce about all like their adventures. They like think about Hoyt, and who is now Duray, and they wonder that if Duray, who is the Pope, dies and Hoyt is reincarnated, will Hoyt automatically become Pope? Ooh, question. Probably not, but that's what they talk about. <laughs> 
they talk about Saul and the Sphinx. And now the Sphinx, that portal, is still there. Like, the portal still exists. And though many people try, only some are allowed through it. Like, it selects certain people into the portal. It's a one-way portal to the future, and certain people get to go through it, and certain people do not. Creepy. The Jade Tomb now also has a portal. And this portal is crazy, because it has something to do with gas giants, and only some special ousters designed to live in Jovian atmospheres attempt to enter and are allowed to enter. And what does that mean? I have no idea. It just mentioned something to do with gas giants. I, you may or I may got. not find out in book three. We may or may end. not. Really may or may not. <laughs> the obelisk remains sealed, and it might be holding just hordes of strikes. At least that's what the ousters think. That's unfortunate. Like all the strikes who weren't allowed out because Kassad won the battle are stuck inside there, basically. You like how you just keep killing shrikes, but they're just keep being more. There could be more shrikes. They also, in fact, like, like, do you think that Braun really killed the shrike, or is there more out there? Who knows? The crystal monolith still holds the tomb of Kassad, and decoded markings spoke of his great victory, and that it has become like this inspirational site for many young warriors to make pilgrimage to. He'd like that. He would. He inspires them, basically. Like, it's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where his victory inspires others to follow him eventually in the future to inspire his victory. That's weird. Thank you yeah. for that. It's a, it's, a great, it's a great little time loop. <laughs> <laughs> the third cave tomb opens two labyrinths on a variety of worlds and passably different times, so that's Yay, fun. Yay, like labyrinths. They, they keep people out of that because like, people are just disappearing. It's not safe. <laughs> Let's not go into the weird time labyrinths. Only like special scientists and other people who are studying are allowed in. The Shrike Palace is now empty of all the people and back to its original size. There's a single portal that glows in the middle of it that allows anyone through, but no one has returned. Three words in sort of worn out stone are written there that read in old Earth Latin, Colosseum, Rome, and Repopulate. Mm. That's something I don't want to know about. <laughs> and so the speculation is that the people who were all on the Tree of Thorns were sent back to Old Earth to reestablish human life there. Sure, why so not? So now Hunt won't be alone. Well, that's good. He needs some friends. Before going to bed, Braun briefly asked Martin, like, hey, do you think you were really on the Tree of Thorns or was it all just a Simston? He's like, I don't know. It didn't make a difference to me. It felt real. So that's all that matters. That's true. At some point, what does it matter, really? Yeah. He's like, does it really matter what the difference is? And she's like, good point. I'm going to go take a walk in the garden before going to bed. And so she goes out <laughs> to go take a walk in the garden. And she runs into Severn, incorporeal but visible. Apparently, he can still travel through the void which binds energies, something which is strong here. I don't know. He's just chilling. He's just chilling, wanting to talk to He's her. He's ghostwriting. He's ghostwriting the whip, Daniel. <laughs> Has Bron had her baby yet? No, she's like seven months pregnant. Okay. I wasn't sure how far in the future this was. I said five months. I'm sure you did. I was not listening. <laughs> Literally, the first thing I said for the epilogue was five months later. And then you said 800 other things, Sam. <laughs> I did. So he talks to her and he tells her he discovered he was not the empathy UI piece, but the one who comes before, and that it wasn't him or anyone else or Manito who helped Ron defeat the Shrike, but certainly the mother of the one who teaches can exercise some prerogatives. So she's going to give birth to the new messiah, basically. <laughs> Yeah, she's baby. I told you that. <laughs> yeah, it didn't say, like, everyone, it's obvious. And yeah, like, when he didn't, well, it's in him, but obviously going to be the baby. But, it was like, going to be baby Keats. She still baby like, feats. Baby feats, right. She still <laughs> like, oof, that's a lot for me to take in. Like, being the mother of the Messiah, that's a big burden. Well, hopefully it is the Messiah and not some kind of demon spawn. Well, like, he's talking about how her baby is the perfect junction of human spirit and AI logic. The child of a human and a core cybered construct. So, like... That's what she gets for having sex with Johnny Keats. Well, like, remember how Saul was saying that it wasn't pain that would that would attract and drive out the empathy part of the UI. It was love. And so it was, like, the love made the baby, and that's what attracted the empathy portion to 
to it is love and the fact that it was this combination of all these other things. So it was like Uman was halfway there with Severin with trying to make like an AI human combination, but it didn't go far enough, basically. Not enough love. Human not enough love. love and not enough like humanity, I guess. So now Sever doesn't know what he's going to do. Like, he he can't stay here forever. The data sphere is gone. And he doesn't want to go wandering through the metasphere where all those creepy things lurk. All those lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. But then Braun says, I have an idea for him. The next morning, Braun and Martin are at the spaceport to see the console off. And he's complaining that his ship AI is acting weird. It keeps reciting Keats poems. Is it? What's his face? Severn? Well, they, Braun and Martin exchange a knowing look and they say, hey, you know what? It's good for you. Just enjoy the, enjoy, enjoy the new AI as you travel the stars for many years. It'll be great. You'll love it. What happens if a ship blows up or something? Well, then Severn dies. I don't know. <laughs> the end. So they just tell him to roll with it. And then Braun gives him a goodbye present, an old hawking mat. The old hockey match he somehow found. Aw, that's sweet. So as the ship lifts off, Braun recalls a final Keats poem from his unfinished Hyperion work. Of course she does. Can't finish without a Keats poem. <laughs> I'm going to give you one Keats poem, Danielle, for the road. Anon rushed by the bright Hyperion, his flaming robes streamed out beyond his heels, and gave a roar as if of earthly fire that scared away the meek ethereal hours and made their dove wings tremble. On he flared. The end. Yay! Good job, Keats. Guess who the dedication is for, Danielle? To Keats. To John Keats, whose name was written Eternity. See, not written water. <laughs> and that, <laughs> oof, that is the end of the fall of Hyperion. Good job, us. And good job, Mr. Simmons. You did spectacularly well. I'm you proud of you. You an insane book, Dan <laughs> Simmons. And I appreciate that. I have, yeah, wow. So. I'm. I'm impressed. I'm thrilled that we made it this far. (laughs) Are you excited for two more books? (laughs) I'm so excited. You can't even imagine. Well, you have to wait a while because I defo need a vacation from this. I need a break. I'm going to take a a brief break from my period until we dive into Endymion. I think our listeners are okay with that. Yeah, they they better be. I I mean, I don't care if they are. They're taking a break. Sorry, guys. (laughs) It's okay. We got through plots. So, like, stuff makes sense now. Yeah, I mean, Makes sense is a strong word. It, it's done. It has some, some things got tied up. Loose ends got tied up a little bit. Exactly. I'm so glad that Saul got Rachel back. Kind of. And has to raise her all over again in the future. Yeah, but you know, there's worse solutions to that problem. <laughs> I don't know why the Shrike turned to glass. Very perplexing. Do not God understand powers. it. Don't ask. <laughs> no. Like, I don't do you, know. Remember things like Jesus turned water into wine and like Braun's first miracle is turning Shrike into glass? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Listeners, if you have a better explanation, please let me know. <laughs> I really want to know what that like moth thing inside the Shrike was. <laughs> yeah, need to know. Need to know. <laughs> DJ Shrike, will he come back in Endymion? I hope so. That was the best part of the whole two books. The Shrike? He is a great character. Yeah, DJ Shrike. Love him. Well, he has... You know, I was just actually, you know, Danielle, I was thinking, there's one more song I, I think you should have added to a set list. Mm-hmm. One I'm surprised you didn't think of. Older by They Might Be Giants. Yeah, that's more your line of music than mine. I'm just saying. <laughs> as much as I love a good They Might Be Giants song. I'm just saying. It's all about how time is marching on and we're all going to go and die. And there's nothing you can do about it, which feels well, very in much. part two, the remix, we will go ahead and add that. Yeah, and I'm going to I'm gonna take the opportunity now to solicit from our listeners. If you have songs you'd like to add to the DJ Shrike remix playlist. Maybe it's time for Sam to do a mixtape. Nope, I'm soliciting our listeners. I'm putting the burden <laughs> on them. Sorry. 
You can send those suggestions to us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. And if you want to fund the research project, we are going to have to start to figure out what the heck happened in this book and what it all means, the metaphor of the strike turning into glass. You can support us at patreon.com slash bookretorts. Patreon! You can also just tell me. Just tell me why you <laughs> turned into glass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No one's going to be able to tell you that. We're going to have to like spend- No need for a project or a paper, you guys. <laughs> Danielle, we're, we're in uncharted territory here. We are starting an epic investigation into unknown territory. We're expanding the bounds of human consciousness and knowledge with this. I'm sure somebody on Google can just tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the lazy way out, but then we don't get any money, Danielle. So, you know, great. That's true. You can send it to us and then I'll Google it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just like you Googled... <laughs> All the, the, all the stuff about Keats. Perfect. I did. You did. I had a whole well Wikipedia done. article on him. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed our extended presentation of Hyperion, the first two books. <laughs> and we appreciate you enjoying that extended presentation. Potentially. We, <laughs> we just don't know which if it was enjoyment or not, but we did it and it's done and oof. So get ready for my next item, which will not be Hyperion, sadly, but don't worry, we'll get back to it eventually, so gird your loins. Yeah, get ready for part three of Face on the Milk Carton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now it's Danielle's turn to, to do a, a series into the ground. Whatever that one is, the voice on the radio? I don't even know. You're the <laughs> one doing it. How would I know? <laughs> also, Something about spoilers. A radio. Well, just listen. I'm sure they've listened to part two. At this point. Yeah, maybe you couldn't find it. Like, you can't find the Crabs books. Okay, I'm pretty sure the voice on the radio or whatever, Janie 3, definitely exists. Milk Carton Part 3. Janie 3, electric <laughs> metaphorny. I don't know, Milkerny. <laughs> right, sure, great. <laughs> I think we are both just so burnt out from all the, the, the <laughs> mental gymnastics we've had to do to figure out Hyperion to understand its convolutions that we must end it there. Until next time, bye. <laughs> Take care, everybody. She's sitting in the door, guarding it. Okay, why is that relevant? I, don't know, I just looked back because I was curious where she was, and she was literally sitting in the door frame, just staring out like she was guarding. It. it was funny, protecting you from the DJ Shrike. Yes, we'd or, or Keats or Yeats <laughs> or Bleats, which is the sheep poet. Get it, Bleats? <laughs> so funny! I can't believe you don't have like a stand-up comedy routine, Danielle. This is why I don't invite you anywhere. <laughs> yes. And not because I live 3,000 miles away. I mean, if you live 3,000 miles closer, I'm not sure that would change that. (laughs) (laughs) We totally hang out. What are you talking about? (laughs) We at least go to a movie sometimes. That's true. Then fall asleep during the third Star Wars movie. Uh, The third of the prequel Star Wars movies, I should say. Did I fall asleep during that? I did. (laughs) No, I was like, I think the only one I came close to falling asleep with while I was with you was Speed Racer. Yeah, that's a fair one to fall asleep with. (laughs) And it was like... It was New Year's. It was past midnight.
That's a very long one with a lot of like very, I don't want to say dull stretches, but very psychedelic stretches that are very hypnotic. It's a good one to fall asleep to. Yeah. That's my one memory of that movie. Great. What more do you need? (laughs) 